Hey, this is Zach. And I'm Clint, and we wanted to thank ExoTerra for sponsoring this episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. ExoTerra is the industry leader in glass terrarium enclosures, and we are a big fan of getting to see the species we work with both at home and at the university. We utilize ExoTerra caging here at Metazotics, and in addition to top quality terrariums, ExoTerra offers an array of heating options, lighting, supplements, decor, and truthfully anything needed or wanted when keeping reptiles. Thank you, ExoTerra, for supporting Colubrid and Colubrid. Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to what I believe is episode forty seven. Of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, as always, Clint is here. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, buddy. How about you? Fantastic. Uh, we are in the midst of the polar vortex um, here. <laughs> it was a balmy nine degrees, I think, this morning when I went out to mm-hmm. my car. Um, so I actually had to move snakes out of the infamous corner. Uh, my Govi alarms were going off. I have them set at 38 degrees, and this is the first time that they went off. I was like, damn, that's cold. So <laughs> I, I got up at like quarter till five in the morning and ran down and moved 35 tubs to the middle of my garage. <laughs> so I ran into you know. the exact same thing, buddy. I had, um, you know, we've got the two cool down rooms that we pump air in from outside, mm-hmm. but it kicked the fan off whenever, you know, it, it hits a, a certain temp. But uh, even with kicking the the air off, um, I came in the other morning in same temp, thirty eight degrees is what uh, mm-hmm. one of those rooms was down to. Luckily, that was the Asian room, so I'm like, they yeah. can handle it. You know, yep. we're good, we're good. But uh, had to uh, start cracking doors open every now and then just to make mm-hmm. sure that it'll bring it back up to about the fifty range where I'm looking to keep it. But yeah, no, man, I, it, it's rough out there right now. Ugh. I. I invested in the more expensive Govies, the ones that I can connect to the Wi-Fi of my house mm-hmm. so I can be anywhere and, and check them. And I can honestly say that at the time I was like, is this thing really worth 50 bucks? And uh, yeah, it was worth 50 bucks. So uh, <laughs> uh, my ass has been saved. But um, yeah, um, our guest tonight is one that we have had a lot of listeners reach out and ask us to try to get on the show. Um, we're thrilled to death to have him. We have John Michaels with Black Pearl Reptiles, and the episode tonight is all things dry marking. Uh, so if you're into dry marking, you like Kribos, Indigos, uh, this is definitely going to be a fun one for y'all. But before we get into that, uh, we have some announcements tonight. Um, the science section, we're not talking about a journal article, we're talking about an opportunity uh, for people, so I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but before we get to the market intro science intro we need to talk about the fact that we now have our first sponsor and i am i can't believe who our first sponsor is so (laughs) clint is the guy behind the scenes that made this one happen so uh clint why don't you tell our listeners who's sponsoring the show and before we go there uh totally endorse them 100 percent so no, absolutely. You know, and I'll tell you, uh, hopefully, as long as we got everything done in time, you guys already know who the sponsor is because you would have heard it at the beginning of this episode. 
uh, whenever it rolled out. <laughs> if we if we've screwed up and we didn't get it done mm-hmm. in time, you'll hear it on the next mm-hmm. episode. There you go. Um, but uh, we are very very proud to announce that um, Exoterra is now a, a sponsor for CCR, um, and I, I really wanted to take a moment to talk about how that came about. Yep. Um, and you spoke to one of the representatives uh, at Tinley. The last Tinley we were at uh, came up and chatted because he, he's a big fan of the show. Um, and a few weeks ago, it reached out. Um, and I think it was after the episode in which we talked about the study that you're uh, yeah. you're going to be doing with the hog nose. And mm-hmm. so he reached out and you know said that they that Exoterra really would like to get involved with that. Uh, wanted to help out you know Zach with uh, with what we're doing or what I'm sorry with what he's doing out there um, in you know that and they wanted to really be a bigger part of the show. So. Um, you know, we, we talked about sponsorship and one of the things that Zach and I both were, were big on and wanted to make sure we were, everyone was in agreement with was, um, we, anyone that we're going to talk about, we, we have to fully believe in which exoterra we absolutely do. Um, and you know, part of what we're going to be doing is exoterra is going to have some new products coming out, you know, over the course of the year. Um, and they are going to want us to to test them, to try them, to see what we think and, and, and talk about them, you know, on the show. And I said, you know, just know going into it that anything that Zach and I, if we're going to to discuss and say things about a product, we have to have it. We have to be using it. We have to believe in it. You know, there's going to be nothing that uh, we're going to we're going to make sure our integrity stays intact. Right. Oh, hell yeah. And what I absolutely loved was during that discussion, um, the representative says, and that's exactly why we wanted to come to you guys, mm-hmm. because we want that. We we want the real opinion from those who are respected, you know, on um, on giving the truth. And that really made me feel good. I mean, it made me feel good about the sponsorship and the partnership. Um, so I'm excited. Zach, I, I think you're excited. Oh, I'm I'm excited. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, that hognose snake study. Um, you know, I you guys can't see it. Maybe you'll see it one day on our live show. But literally, 18 inches behind my right shoulder is a Exoterra low, large or medium. I don't know the exact size, um, but that's the cage or the enclosure that I, I put the the sand in and decked it out, trying to make a biotope for the hognose snakes just for fun. And then ended up like watching them in there and the height and everything was just kind of perfect. Uh, so the fact that like that study is now getting support and it's helping out the school and everything else, that's, that's nothing but awesome. So yeah, uh, I look forward to, to doing this and um, yeah, the, the people that like to keep naturalistic enclosures uh, definitely, you know, stay tuned um, because that's what we plan on testing. And on that front, I, I have it on our outline, but I just might as well jump into it. We, the, the university, you know, my students here, the 10 of them that are helping me, we call it Team Heterodon. I keep it as nerdy as can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, we actually meet on Wednesdays at 4 o'clock, and uh, they're out getting journal articles right now. And we start our first captive study on February 1st. And if you're listening, don't know when this will drop, but it's around, well, it's January 17th today. So. Uh, where we literally had the meetings today about where the enclosure is going to go, how are we going to set up the study? 
I was even thinking about the possibility just for those of people that listen that are like, I want to be able to document behavior and the snakes I'm watching. It's called an ethogram. We may do an, a real nerdy episode one day. We embrace nerdiness here, by the way. I love um, my nerd. Yes. Uh, we don't run away from that. Um, but we may actually talk about like how you can do that because I think if you're, you're track, if you learn how to track behaviors in a kind of logical scientific way, it makes keeping these things so much more fun. In my opinion, Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do about like, I'm a scientist in my ivory tower. I just like doing it because it makes them more interesting and I can see patterns and trends. And Mm -hmm. I know if my husbandry practice is, uh, if the animals are actually using it or if I think they're using it, like I want to actually get in and get in on that. So that might be something we do in the future, but yeah. So that's our announcement. Um, we have another announcement. I'm proud of this announcement. I feel like an old ass man walking up hills, mother blank and Facebook, but damn it. We did it. We <laughs> saved it. We saved, we the saved day. it. We do not need to delete the original page. Um, it took getting on the computer to change a password to then get on my phone to then log in to then add Clint. Like it was, it was way too difficult. And I know that I'm showing my age because yeah, (laughs) but um, we made a Facebook post about this today. And and our our good friend of the show, Jason hood was like, would have taken you 30 seconds. If you had a college kid help you, this is a fun fact. I reached out to those college kids. We have now matriculated out to where the, the five to eight Gen Zers, I was like, hey, get in here and help me, please. They were like, I don't know anything about Facebook. It's not TikTok. So, you know, I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> so, so anyway, but, you know, two old farts did it. So that's what matters. Right. So the, the page has been saved. Uh, so, yeah. You made it. And, and guys, mm-hmm. expect that page to get a lot more active um, and yes. a lot more interactive. You know, mm-hmm. I know we, we're always asking about uh, ideas and recommendations and things like that. Um, now we have this, you know, place where both eyes, um, you know, get on it as far as myself and Zach. Um, it's if you get two replies or something, please forgive us because, you know, it's going to be both <laughs> of us looking at this and, and talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but now at least there's a more centralized place for us to be able to communicate with everyone. Um, and I, I will ask, please, uh, if you haven't liked the page yet, go up and do it, um, because we, we will be posting some questions on there that we do need feedback. We do want to, to hear what you guys, uh, think and, and help us guide the show in the direction you want it. Uh, yeah. so, so, uh, yeah, that's, it's good stuff, man. It, I'm really no, glad 100%. Got that taken care of. Yeah. And, uh, it's really weird when like I submitted to, journal articles this week and the the pinnacle of achievement was getting you added as a damn admin to the facebook page <laughs> so there's that anyway oh, that was good okay stuff. <laughs> so um yeah that that's our, our two you know fun announcements um so you want to head on into i don't really have anything new we're in the dead of winter other than like the collection potentially freezing to death and saving it that's basically all that that that's happened since we recorded with Kayla for me. Yeah. Same on my end. It's, you know, we're still in probation. It's figuring out when I want to bring them up. And I I start, uh, I'm just kind of dreading (laughs) having to take the time to, 
um, sit down and list out all the pairings and what's mm-hmm. going to go to what and, and all that fun stuff. Um, you know, once it starts pairing, that's fun, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, to sit down and plan yeah. it, it's just, oh man, that's going to take some time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just projects and, and things like that around here. Other than I think from now until the second week of April, first week of April or second, I think I'm booked for nine shows. Holy hell. So yeah, it, it's, it's about to get hectic, but. Um, I'll, I'll chat more about that in a minute. You know, on the market yeah, with the market section. But yeah, it's going to be busy. <laughs> I, I will say one thing about the polar, the, the vortex that's hitting the central and eastern part of the country. It is actually an opportunity. So here at the university, uh, I don't, I try not to like hide things. And I'm about to say this and people are going to completely overreact. So please don't overreact. But we have a couple enclosures and we have one rack where we we just seem to always be battling mites in those enclosures. Uh, we'll 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 use no pest strips. We'll use pyrethrin. Back when we had it, we would use the spray on the on the um the frontline spray on the snakes. Do hu- husbandry changes, wipe everything down, and then it would dry out in there. And then somehow mites would show up. Uh, and and it's not like these animals were infested with mites. They but they were getting mites. And this does actually provide an opportunity to a herpetoculturalist because with those enclosures, I told my keeping staff here, I was like, okay, it's going to be getting cold and it's staying cold. So why don't we come up with some temporary enclosures and anything that had mites in it this year, I want it outside uh, in the cold for the duration of the cold. Now, um, Ophionysis, the snake mite, there is some data that shows they can survive freezing, but freezing at like zero for day after day after day after day, that's kind of difficult for things to survive. So you can't like say with 100% confidence they're gone now, but you definitely realistically are almost certainly going to knock back a large number. And what I think is happening in these is we've got the, the stupid little spaces where the PVC kind of come together and they get down in there, they lay their eggs and then the damn eggs sit there down in a state of diapause until conditions get good again. And then they hatch. And because the mites are parthenogenic, you get, you know, five to 10 of them actually make it onto the snake. If they reproduce parthenogenically, now we've got, you know, 50, a hundred, 200, 400. And the next thing you know, you've got a little mint out mite outbreak. So we are using, the cold and maybe you are a listener and you're like, huh, didn't think about that, but you might want to get, if you get these opportunities, put the snakes in some temporary housing, if you can, and just shove the enclosures out um, into the cold and let them freeze. And that's literally what we're doing. We got them protected under a awning. um, But we put the one rack is out there that gave us fits. And then these six enclosures uh, that I use here in the office um, that, it just seems like you look on the damn snakes and it's never like an infestation, but there's like one or two. Mm-hmm. So that's something you can use with the cold and use the cold to your advantage. So absolutely thought I'd throw that out there. All right, let's do the market and science update. So I, uh, you, you do market, I'll do science. Then we'll hop into the snakes. How about that? Okay, good. Cause I didn't want to do science. I'd, All right, I'd, cool. rather, I'd rather do the market <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. All right, buddy. Um, so just uh, a few little pieces here, guys. Um, one, again, from a personal side here, uh, trends are continuing just as expected. 
Um, you know, the, I don't even want to call it a lull because I'm not really sensing a lull. Um, I want to say that animal sales have slowed slightly, um, compared to again, what we were experiencing with Christmas and whatnot. Um, we just did a show in Indianapolis, the Midwest reptile show this past Sunday. Um, and it was, it was decent. I mean, wasn't uh, our best show by any means, but wasn't our worst, um, and that again was as expected. Um, I will say, as I just mentioned, we've got about nine shows uh, scheduled up through the second week of April. And the reason is, is because in about another two weeks um, is when tax checks will begin. Um, and you'll see a market jump take place um, with that disposable income filtering in. So, uh, so follow that along. You know, if you are. Uh, if you're a breeder who does have animals that you're you're looking to send to a new home, um, be ready to ride that wave. Make sure that you have them placed in, uh, whether it's your, your website, um, whether you are signed up for shows or it's Morph Market. Uh, make sure that you've got them visible because there will be buyers coming. Um, they're already out there, but there will be more coming soon. Speaking of Morph Market, um, I do want to kind of give a little bit of, of data here. Um, one, so here's the overall snake market right now as far as what is posted on Morph Market. So there are currently 57,588 snakes listed for sale on Morph Market Lord. as of right now. And here's the thing. 45,118 of those are ball pythons. Huh. So that makes up 78.3% of all snakes listed on Morph Market right now are ball pythons. Um, the all other pythons, 2,522, so 4.4%. All boas, 5,621, that's 9.8%. And here's the thing that, that makes me smile for those of us who enjoy this particular uh, side of the hobby or this particular sect. Colubrids, all colubrids, 4,327. So colubrids as a whole only make up 7.5% of the available animals, I'm sorry, available snakes on morph market. And just for giggles here, out of that number, out of that 4,300, nearly 2,000 of those are corn snakes. Hmm. Yeah, corn snakes make up 44.5% of all the colubrids that are for sale on morph, market, on morph market. So the reason I share that is because when you back that out, right, whenever you really yeah. think about the colubrid market, when you think about the number of species that are lumped into that word, you know, colubrid when it comes to that market there, that's, there's, that's why we don't really feel a market slow, right? That's why we don't feel anything because as we discussed before about the whole, the demand is really the same, but in certain categories, there's a surplus and colubrids, there's not, you know, maybe a little bit in corns. Okay. But there's, 
and when you think about the huge variety of corn snakes that there are, I mean, there, there's yeah. really tons and tons of, of morphs and mutations. So naturally, there's going to be a lot of those on there. Um, but that that's really promising. I mean, in the mm-hmm. grand scheme of things, you know, that's that, that it's less than a, one snake per person that goes on the morph market, you know, buyers on a, a day. So yeah. that, that's really cool. I thought that that was, uh, you know, some interesting information. The other final piece um, that just because I know it's kind of the hot topic if you're on Facebook and um, following any anything on Morph Market, auctions. Morph Market yes. has started to test out auctions. Um, and there's, you know, you've got half of the people that love the idea and are, are loving it. You got half that, you know, are upset and irritated and, you know, feel that it's it's lowering pricing on animals. And I can understand where everyone's sitting, both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, personally, though, I would say that auctions, they have a place because in a way it's going to tell you the value of an animal. Yeah. You know, that, that it's. That's that's going to be the the truth. I personally have not put any up for auction yet, but I have won one. So, no. You know, I, I, I did participate. Um, and now I will say it also the value of that animal. If we're basing it off of an auction, it will change with when the auction takes place. So, for example, you have X Y Z snake placed for auction right now. I can almost guarantee it will probably go for a lower amount than it will in six weeks. And that goes back to what we were just talking about. There will be more disposable income in the population. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. so naturally, you know, bids will go a little higher. Snakes will go for a little bit more, um, you know, on the, on the auctions Um, again. And I, I know it sounds like I'm beating up a certain segment and I promise that's not the case. Um, but those that are having the, the more negative impact from an auction are the ball Python market, but that's really because just about all auctions right now are ball pythons on morph market, you know, so um, you can see where, but that's again, there, there, there's been complaints from that market, you know, all, all year. Um, And I understand why, I mean, it's when things slow down, that that's kind of sucks. If if you're banking on a certain, uh, certain level of income, I guess, but all in, auctions aren't bad, especially when they are controlled to the degree that I think Darian's doing right now, where he's really limiting. I think it's down to two, two auctions that a person can do in a month time frame. So it's, you know, if, if it is flooded with auctions, that means it's flooded with surplus animals, not yes. that there's one person abusing the auction system, if that makes sense. So, yeah. um, so I think it's not a bad idea to test out. I think, you know, it's, it's something, um, that we'll watch, we'll see what happens. Um, and you know, if, if you haven't checked it out already, I recommend you do so. If you, uh, I can tell you if you, if there's an animal that's listed, you like, I mean, you may get it at a pretty good price. So check it out. There you go. I haven't, I haven't looked into the auctions yet. I'm going to probably look into that this week. I, I saw them and I saw people discussing them i'll be diplomatic <laughs> but uh uh i i didn't go on because the only like you said they were ball pythons and i'm you know i think ball pythons are pretty uh 
I don't know anything about ball pythons. Uh, so I just kind of went onward. And and for the record, we don't we're not dogging them. I just they're they're not my cup of tea. No, no. Just absolutely. like for some people, weird South American snakes aren't their cup of tea. So. Yeah. You know, different structure, yeah. different folks. 100%. And, you know, and to Darian's credit, Darian reached out and asked if I had seen any slowdown in inquiries um, on uh, snakes that I had posted on Morph Market. And let him know, no, I didn't. I've not noticed any, you know, slowdown on the number of people contacting me uh, for animals, I think. But I, I say at the same time, very few things that I have on Morph Market are ball pythons. And it feels yeah. like that's where the auctions are going to, you know, affect any, any piece of it. So, so good okay. things. I can tell you it's still hopping for me. All righty. Okay. Science updates different. Uh, we're not actually talking about a journal article. We're talking about an opportunity and it will be discussed pretty much in the next upcoming episodes until the event actually occurs, which is in June. So you will be hearing about this in uh perpetuity. So um, those of you that listened to the episodes in midsummer, I can't remember exactly who the guest was back then, but I talked about the fact that I went to my first international herbological symposium meeting, IHS as it's referred to. Um, this is kind of this is a, a wonderful organization um, because it actually is a scientific organization uh, that had its roots in herpetoculture. So if you if you go to the Daytona show, the Daytona show is a direct result of IHS because IHS used to be the meeting where you would get the zoo people, the herpetoculturalists think Philippe de Vaugelais type herpetoculturalists um, and, and some herpetologists and they would kind of meet up and, and they would discuss what they were finding. They would you know write their stuff up in the scientific way. It was a meeting, but then go back to the hotel rooms and then hotel rooms, we have this bartering system and that's where you were actually doing the swap of the, of the snakes and uh, IHS kind of got away from that because they got a little bit more conservation-minded. And when you get conservation-minded, selling snakes in hotel rooms isn't exactly what conservationists think of doing. Um, so uh, that's when it kind of split away. And then we get the Orlando show, which then became Daytona. And then Daytona, of course, ruled through the 90s. And then the NARBCs sprout off from that. So – there's kind of a really cool history here, but uh, the president of IHS is Mike Clarkson, who we will be having on in the next upcoming months. So if you like aquatic snakes, I mean, like elephant trunk snakes, um, tentacled snakes, the homolopsids, if you know what those are, that's what Mike's specialty is. But Mike's the, the president, and um, I've been trying to find a place to take all the science I'm doing with my students and, and present it, and you can't really do that in a traditional herpetology for the sake of herpetology type meeting. And IHS was literally like round hole, put the round peg in it, perfect relationship. But then I kind of, you know, I got to thinking it'd be really, really cool if there was a day of IHS where there was a focus on herpetoculture advancement um, and then keeping kind of these weird oddball species and giving people a platform to, to present this. And so I talked with Mike. Um, I also talked to Roy Blodgett and, and Phil from Project Herpetoculture. Anybody that knows me knows I absolutely fanboy the hell out of that podcast. And I was talking with Roy at first, then Phil got in. And, and, and you know, all three of us were like, we need a venue. We all want to do kind of these presentations of 
herpetoculture in like the kind of scientific um, meeting type atmosphere. And so we're going to be doing what equates to like half a day to two thirds of a day of herpetoculture talks. Um, so I'm going to be recruiting a bunch of speakers. Uh, the meeting is going to be in June. And um, if you want to attend, you can totally sign up. Please understand this isn't like a Tinley kind of situation. Uh, but, you know, if you went to the Gecko Symposium at the beginning of Tinley, uh, it's definitely got that vibe to it. Uh, there is no selling of animals at all. So don't think that there's a show. That's not part of this. But this is more you know, knowledge and, and ideas. And so I'm going to be presenting a, a presentation there on naturalistic keeping techniques for hognosnakes. Notice a theme. It's like taking over my damn world. <laughs> so anyway, but um, but yeah, more details on that. And you can learn more about it on Project Herpeticulture as, as well, because I know that Roy is going to be uh, promoting it on their show, too. Um, so I'm going to be letting you know, like, how much cost dates. I do know right now that the meeting is in June. Um, I think it's in mid to late June. Uh, next episode, I'll have more details and a little bit more for you all to learn about. So, yeah, that's my my big update. So if you're you know, near Knoxville, that's where the meeting's going to be happening. Highly, highly, highly recommend this. If you are on the nerdy side of herpetoculture and you like the science and you like the, you know, you like to go field herping and, and you like the field conservation side of things and you like to kind of test your husbandry practice and, and, and think about it critically. Um, this is, I, I can't say enough about this meeting. It was, it was wonderful. And the people there are fantastic. And so we're, we're I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to death at IHS. We had to get permission from their board and they said, go forward. So uh, I have every intention of going forward. So yeah, that's that. Very okay. Cool. So big introduction this week, just because we had an awful lot to talk about. Um, but I do think it's time we jump into this. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to jump on. Um, so without further ado, our guest tonight, if you keep dry marking, there's no way you don't know our guest. Uh, I know that many people, including myself, have gone to the website, which is now, I would argue, a little bit iconic in herpetoculture circles, uh, just kind of going over everything that's on it. But our guest tonight is um, John Michaels. Uh, and, uh, he's, you know, part of black pearl reptiles. Uh, and yeah, we're thrilled to have you. So, um, John, how's it going? How you doing guys? Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on. This is, uh, it's always fun to sit and hang out and chat about snakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's what we're doing. So I guess we have some questions for you, obviously. Uh, first question is kind of our, our launching question, uh -huh. which is, like, how'd you get into this? Why colubrids? And how did you land on Drymarkin ultimately? And I know there were other species along the way, but right, right. You know, that's what you're obviously known for today. So right. Uh, well, I uh, I started. I mean, as a kid, kind of more as a field person. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was just my older brothers and I. You know, we go out. You know, hiking and fishing and catching frogs and you know grabbing snakes and whatever and doing all that sort of thing. And, you know, so snakes just always were sort of fascinating to me uh, as a kid. And, you know, so I, you know, naturally along the line, you know, I wanted to keep them in my room, you know, I want to keep them and observe them and, 
all that kind of thing as I'm a kid. And, you know, my dad's, uh, you know, rule was, hey, listen, we're not spending any money on this stuff, but you want to go out and catch something, go ahead. You know, so, uh, you know, I grew up in Southern California, so, you know, it was gopher snakes and, and king snakes and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, invariably somewhere along the line, uh, you know, I started uh, kind of testing out the whole, um, you know, breeding and husbandry thing along it, just fooling around as a kid. You know, I used to grab, you know, four or five, you know, adult gopher snakes and I just throw them into one big old terrarium, you know, and the, <laughs> the males would kind of combat a bit, and, the, and which I thought was super interesting. And, you know, they breed and, you know, and then I'd get eggs, you know, and, uh, you know, I'd incubate the eggs and, and do all that. And all this is, you know, pre-internet, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. No mm-hmm. clue. Didn't, I wasn't even friends with anyone who was into snakes, you know, I'm just screwing around. And, uh, you know, so I'd, I'd figure out how to hatch, you know, the baby gopher snakes and whatnot. And I go, you know, every spring I'd catch a handful and every fall I'd release the adults and the babies back where I found them and, you know, all that sort of thing. And so I just kind of fiddled around with it and, you know, and then I kind of had to get serious in college and all that sort of business. But, uh, you know, post-college, I, you know, I thought, yeah, you know, man, now that I'm kind of an adult now and I can, uh, you know, buy some cool things, uh, I started kind of going that route. And um, so I did that for a couple of years, just kind of odds and ends. And, um, you know, and then I had, you know, through field herping circles, uh, you know, met a few guys that bred snakes, you know. And then I was, oh, well, you know, they sold their snakes for a little bit of money. Oh, well, that's kind of cool. Uh, you know, I had a friend who did Alterna and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so I thought, well, you know, I kind of like to do that. You know, that'd be fun. And uh, so then it was, uh, you know, the whole Boed thing never really interested me um, from, a, from a breeding perspective. You know, I, uh, you know, when I was kind of playing around with keeping things, I had some white lip pythons because I thought were kind of, you know, heavy metal looking kind of rock star kind of snakes, you know, and, uh, you know, but, but then I was thinking, well, you know, let's get something more manageable, something that I can be, that's maybe not quite as tricky as breeding, you know, farm raised, uh, you know, white lip pythons, you know? Um, and so I settled on Honduran milk snakes, uh, because I knew with my experience level, I wanted something that was a little smaller, um, but was also relatively easy to keep for being a, you know, a newbie with this whole thing. Um, and I wanted, uh, I also didn't really have any experience with tricky feeding babies. So I chose to avoid, you know, the Alterna route mm-hmm. and that kind of thing at that stage in my, uh, in my career, if you want to call it a career of my, of my hobby. And, uh, so I did that for a while and, um, you know, I worked a lot with, uh, Shannon Brown, who you, uh, may know and remember, um, uh, and um, and so he helped me kind of get into some of the morphs, and I played around with the morphs a little bit, and that was kind of fun, and you know, so then I you know discovered the reptile shows, you know, I get a booth and I'd sell some of my babies, and then it was hey, I got a little bit of money here, and you know maybe this can help me pay for my for my feed, for my feeders, you know, wouldn't that be nice, you know, self sustaining hobby, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I started scaling it up a little bit more and then it was, well, I got, I got a little extra cash here, you know? Um, so rather than pocket it, you know, I'm just going to go buy more snakes, you know, like we all do, you know, <laughs> yep, just go, yep. just go buy more, you know? <laughs> and, uh, it wasn't long, uh, after that, 
that there was a guy near me who had um, who was selling a pair of adult blacktail crevos. And I just thought they were gnarly looking. I didn't know anything about them, but I just thought they were gnarly looking. You know, they're huge, big, strong. I mean, a non-venomous cobra, essentially, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they were adults. And, you know, I so I took the plunge and I bought them. And through no real expertise on my end, uh, I was able to breed them, you know. And next thing you know, I've got, you know, 20, uh, you know, baby black-tail crebos and and it's like, wow, holy crap, you know, that's, uh, I got all these babies now and I got to get the, the, the things feeding, you know? And so that was a real sharp learning curve, uh, you know, learning, well, I'm sure we'll get into that later that these are, you know, real prey generalist type snakes and you don't really know what they want when they're babies. You got to figure it out. And, and then I discovered, you know, the demand was really high for these things, you know, and they, everyone wanted them and it wasn't hard to sell them. And, uh, you know, so I, got all the babies feeding and I sold them all. And then I took that money and I bought a pair of Eastern Indigos uh, from a guy up in the San Francisco area. And, you know, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. And it wasn't long after that, that it was, well, shoot, these dry Marcon are awesome. You know, I just completely fell in love with the intelligence, the power, the, the, the inquisitiveness, the, the, the temperament, uh, everything about Indigos and Crebos are just totally into. And, uh, then I just kind of nerded out on that whole thing, and it's well, there are six major subspecies in the pet trade, and I want them all. You know, <laughs> yeah, I gotta have them all, and uh, so that happened. You know, and then I started kind of producing them all, and then it was, well, you know, I'd like to have a, a, a breeding group of each of those six subspecies. You know, and um, somewhere along that line, I met uh, a guy who's now my business partner with it, Chris Rodriguez, uh-huh. uh, who, who formerly worked at the LA Zoo in the, uh, in the reptile house. And uh, he, he shared a similar interest in all the drum archon. And so between the two of us, we pooled our collections. We figured out how it was going to look from a business model standpoint with, you know, his expertise and my expertise and whatever. And, you know, then you know, every penny we made was not pocketed. Every penny we made was reinvesting in cages, reinvesting in new animals and building our collection. And man, I mean, you know, these are high end snakes and we, every penny we sold went into building what later became, you know, black pearl reptiles. And it was, you know, we wanted to have an exceptional breeding group of each of the major subspecies and then as color variations came out well we need a breeding group of that color variation and another one of this color variation and you know and uh, you know and then you we wanted to have as big a base as possible for each of those subspecies so we could kind of get you know we're going to talk about inbreeding later but get more diverse stock and genetics and things like that and it really wasn't for a whole decade that it started being like okay, we kind of have like a little business here and uh, we're working with animals that we are super passionate about and I think are super cool and, you know, we're selling them and, and, you know, and enjoying a little bit of profit on it. And so it kind of went from there. So um, just a slow progression over the course of, uh, you know, 20 years all in all from, you know, playing around with gopher snakes in my garage to, (laughs) you know, now I got a, you know, a, uh, you know, a couple hundred uh, snakes with very fast metabolism. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, 
it's uh, it, that's kind of the arc of how it all went down. So one thing uh, I, I want to reiterate and point out for everyone that just heard that that I, I admire that you, uh, you know what you said, and it was and it was the order of what you said too. Whenever you started to make a little money on it, mm-hmm. the first thing that you said you went and did was got better caging, upgraded right. that piece. And I, yeah. I think that that is so important and something that I think so many people get ahead of themselves right. where it's yeah. I, I need to get more pairs of this or I need to you know get that pair of that more. But the first thing that you said you did was got more cages, got better caging and upgraded that. So kudos to you there. That's awesome. I appreciate that. And, you know, just to give you a shout out, Clint, you know, I've really I've only discovered your podcast a couple weeks ago and I've I've listened to a couple episodes by now and I really enjoy the market piece. And one of the things that I really find interesting about it, even just what you guys were talking about a few minutes ago, you know, with the data from Morph Market and so forth, is that, you know, one of the things that I think we don't really talk about enough is is, you know, the business side of it and the market side of it. And I find that really fascinating. And that's kind of, you know, one of the sub passions that I have in, in doing what I do with all this stuff. I was a finance major coming out of college, and but I knew I didn't want to do that as my kind of day job, so to speak. But but I've really enjoyed kind of, you know, the, the business aspect of it all. And, um, and so, you know, when there's data, I love looking at it, you know, and uh, so I've appreciated the little segments that you've had there. Uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I, I will say that, you know, when Zach and I were talking about that, it was and I've even mentioned it to him where I think that the market piece wasn't really discussed too often by too many in a public setting. Right. Um, because there can be a stigma that comes along with it where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get labeled as, oh, well, they're only in it for the money kind of thing. And and I just don't believe that's true. There's certainly those out there that are like that, but I think there are a lot of us that we want to be able to be fully engrossed in this every day, that this is what we want to do for a living because of how much we love it. But in order to be able to do it for a living, there is a business side yeah. to this that we have to understand. Um, and it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, again, I, right back to, to the point of you invested in the cages first, Right. You know, before getting bigger, that that's what it's about. You know, it's if you're going to to do this as a business, making sure you're doing it with the animal's best care in mind, and that will make your business succeed to a greater extent. So, um, good yeah. stuff, man. Good. Stuff. No, I I agree, and I and and you know, and I've had this exact conversation with people in the past that you're a thousand percent correct. That you know. There does seem to be a stigma that if you are actually making money, uh, you know, selling reptiles or whatever, that somehow there's a stigma that you're, you know, you know, the the, the mammal equivalent of a puppy mill um, Mm -hmm. that that somehow if you do a high volume or if you, um, you know, are profitable or whatever you want to call it from a business perspective, that somehow that means that your animals are lesser quality or not being as well taken care of or whatever it is that you want to say. But, you know, where, where, where along the line do we talk about, you know, maybe good businesses offering good animals? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, and so, you know, being successful from a business perspective doesn't necessarily mean that your product is garbage. You know, it's kind of the opposite in my mind. So I don't know. 
it just it, it's a weird stigma that's happened in the um in the in the herpetoculture circles so I, I really appreciate that people are talking about it in kind of a positive sense you know because there are a lot of breeders out there that want to make a few bucks and you know whether it's a their full-time job or something a side hustle or or just monetizing something that they enjoy doing i i, I think it's worthy of talking about so i appreciate that segment thank you so much really appreciate that very cool so wh- why don't we talk a little bit about the different dry market before we jump into all the husbandry stuff so you mentioned that there were six subspecies uh or, or six taxa mm-hmm. what are the six and then if you don't mind just kind of given the like highlight reel of what you like about them what you don't like sure. about them uh just kind of shoot from the hip and I'd love to hear your opinion. As you're about to do this, I want to uh-huh. tell our, our listeners, if you are listening to this and you've got your phone out or by your computer, blackpearlreptiles.com, if you go to that, because that's where I'm at right now, as, as um, we're about to hear about each of the different types, you've got a, an awesome website here, buddy. Yes. I, I'm taking it. Thank you. Appreciate um, it. But, I mean, I, you can click and kind of follow along and see what it is that's being discussed. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there now so that uh, you, you had visuals yeah. if you'd like. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And, then, I mean, not to belabor the issue, but that kind of piggybacks on the, you know, the, the business part of it. You know, one of the things that I really, um, you know, uh, think has gone well is that, is that you have to have a visual along with whatever it is that you're trying to sell. So a website with good pictures and it seems like somewhere along the line of all this, people kind of went more social media route and not website route. But uh, I've always tried to funnel people through the website and I've actually, yes. you know, so just, uh, I, I don't know, I feel like I neglect it sometimes, but, uh, you know, just have it be an informational hub, uh, you know, with photos and text and whatever else. But, um, so anyway, you're right. On the on the website, I do try to outline the six major um, subspecies that are in the pet trade. So uh, to break it down, you know, you have three that we commonly use the word indigo snake uh, as as uh, as a common name. There is the eastern indigo snake, which I think is the iconic colubrid, in my opinion. Uh, you know. And uh, that a lot of people know about, you know, they're native to the southeast part of the United States. They're listed as threatened on the Endangered Species Act. Uh, I feel like that has the most public exposure. People know about the eastern indigo snakes, big, huge colubrids, powerful, strong, inquisitive, intelligent, um, and uh, with great temperaments. And so uh, they're, they're kind of, in my opinion, kind of known as the the iconic uh, colubrid really that's out there. Uh, um, but along with that, there are five others that I feel like people should know about, uh, particularly if you're into colubrids and, and large colubrids and indigo snakes. So uh, there is the Texas indigo snake, which obviously is native to Texas, the southern part of Texas. Um, but a lot of people also don't realize that they range all the way pretty far south into Mexico as well. They actually have a very large geographic range. Um, and those are really neat. Um, so we've got a group of those. Uh, and then there are also the Mexican indigo snakes. Um, when that's really kind of interesting because, um, you know, 
we can get into this later, but science side, I would love to have someone spend some time looking at the taxonomy of Mexican trimarchon because there's a lot going on down there. But the yeah. Mexican indigo snake is um, more along the west coast of Mexico, uh, from Sonora and ranging all the way down into Michoacan and Guerrero. And, uh, and then it can all kind of hook in a little bit inland and head towards the east as well. And uh, in their natural range, so they have a very large range as well. And within that group, there are different color variations. And I kind of try to simplify it down into black and red. Uh, but we'll get into that. So those are kind of the three major indigo subspecies. You've got the eastern indigo, the Texas indigo, and the Mexican indigos. Uh, then as you can kind of continue further south uh, in the Americas, you've got the blacktail cribo. You've got the unicolor Cribo, which are more Central American. They'll range from Southern Mexico down to Colombia. Um, Blacktail Cribo is obviously a, you know, a tan-looking animal with a black tail. Um, really wild uh, face markings and are really intriguing snakes. Unicolor Cribo, we can get into this if we want. It's a whole other subject to debate, but uh, essentially the same snake with a lighter tail. Um, and, uh, so that's why they can get that name unicolor Cribo, uh, and their ranges can often overlap, um, and, and you can debate the taxonomy of it and whether or not they're really legitimate subspecies, but, uh, that's the way they're described now. And they're in Central America. And as you continue further South, pretty much the entire South American continent has yellowtail Cribos. Uh, native in that range from from Venezuela all the way down to uh, Argentina. Uh, so massive, massive natural range for the yellowtail Cribo. So uh, you've, and to sum it up, you've got the three indigos that are further north. You've got the three Cribos that are further south. You'll sometimes see the word indigo used as a common name to describe some of the Cribos, you know, mid-America indigo snake or South American or whatever. But in general, in uh, herpeticulture, we've got the blacktail Cribo, the unicolor Cribo, and the yellowtail Cribo. So um, that's kind of a brief little summary of the six of the major ones that are in the U.S. Uh, pet trade. Do, other than visual appearances, um, are there size difference, differences between the different subspecies or disposition differences, anything like that? Any other notable characteristic differences? They're minor. They're minor. Uh, you know, um, there. I mean, there. There's some. Te- there are some temperament differences. There are some of those subspecies that, on average, tend to be a little bit more defensive than others. Um, size, a little. You know, on average, maybe a half a foot this way or that way. But in general. In general, to really oversimplify it all, they're really all the same snake with a different paint job. Um, the care is very similar. Um, I mean, whether it's from Argentina or Texas or, or South Florida, uh, the care is remarkably similar for all six of those. Um, so it's, um, yeah, I mean, any differences between those six are pretty minute, in my opinion. Very cool. All right, good deal. So... I have a couple kind of questions specific. So let's talk about the the Mexicans for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because with, with Rubidus, that's the, I believe that's a subspecies name for them. So Correct. sometimes they're called Rubidus if you're talking to a Drymarkin person. Right. Uh, 
we've got this red-bellied thing, and then this black-bodied, white-bellied thing. Uh, and I have, you know, I, I've gone down rabbit holes trying to understand. There's oftentimes kind of questions about how did they get here, and, mm-hmm. and I figured this was something that, you know, rather than run away from it, let's just hit it straight on the head. So, sure. Um, has the the, the white bodied black re, white bellied black bodied rubidus been in herpetoculture longer than the red bellied? Like, what's just kind of spitball the the history of those guys and what's going on? And um, overall, I think so. Yes, um, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago. You know, well, I, uh, several decades ago when there weren't any restrictions from moving animals from Mexico into the U.S. So there were a lot of Mexican species of animals in the pet trade that came when it wasn't regulated, you know. And mm-hmm. so I think the pet trade had uh, the more of the black and white rubidus uh, going on. And, this, the, you know, these were kind of the old school days when herpetoculture was a little bit more about just sort of keeping wild snakes rather than, captive propagation yeah um and so but but they persisted and enough people bred them that they kind of took hold into the pet trade and there were some red ones uh around but there's certainly been a lot more of an explosion of the red ones in the pet trade in in the last 10 years or so i would say um and uh you know with all that stuff coming into the u.s and a lot of stuff went to europe lots of stuff went from mexico to europe and uh, you know, you have uh, – the world is just smaller than it used to be. It's a lot easier to get animals from one country to another. And, uh, you know, there's certainly um, downsides to that uh, from a conservation <laughs> perspective, uh, from a legal perspective. But there's also some upside to for, you know, the hobbyists like us that, you know, we can get access to pretty cool uh, things that people are breeding in Europe or, or whatever else. So uh, a lot of animals that I have came from Europe. Um, you know, it's just a lot easier to get animals from other parts of the world than they used to be. You used to have to, you know, go through importers that were bringing through, you know, uh, crates full of wild-caught snakes and all that. But um, with the kind of explosion of captive propagation in the last several, uh, last few decades, and uh, and and the world just kind of getting smaller, we've we're, we're able to kind of get some neat stuff into the pet trade. Okay, and then the, the other. One I'd like to hit on a little bit is yellowtails. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was when when I was building the collection here at the school, I knew I wanted dry marking, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I picked up some. I believe they're actually they were from your stock, mm-hmm. and somebody bought them, kind of raised them up to they were about three four feet each, and then they wanted to move them on, and then I picked them up at that point. Uh-huh. Um, and they've been here since the onset of the degree, which. They were bought in 2016. They've bred twice. We've gotten two clutches out of them. Cool. Uh, and what's really cool about them is um, the male is like a seven-foot corn snake, mm-hmm. super chill. And mm-hmm. the female, we named her Karen <laughs> for her attitude. Sorry right. if that offends you, but uh, she some days she's great. And then about uh-huh. every fifth to sixth interaction, she's – um. She's, she does a lot of tail buzzing, and she does a lot of mock strikes. Uh, uh-huh. But it's kind of like the boy does not fit the kind of stereotypical, somewhat cranky yellowtail 
female right. dog. What, what's your experience with temperament with the yellowtails? And do you have well, any suggestions to kind of calm them down? Because they did not live up, even though Karen, as the student uh-huh. commander, can be testy. She's still a, like, I don't really ever get struck at because I just kind of go in and confidently grab her and grab, you know, use a hook, right, move her to where right. I need to be, put her down, and everything's okay. Right. Um, but do you have any comments to that idea? Sure. I mean, there's, there's, there, when you're talking about yellowtail specifically, you know, for a lot of years, uh, their the pet trade was just sort of flooded with wild caught animals because mm-hmm. a lot of them are coming from Suriname and Guyana, which is where a lot of the South American species come into the pet trade uh, because those countries are open to you know ex- exporting yep. wild caught animals, right? So we just get tons of these uh, snakes, and you know you're 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 a Kribo and you're pulled out of the wild, and you're a six foot long snake, and you're thrown into a bag and sent across the world. Uh, yeah, they're they're generally pretty cranky, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but that's that can be different from captive bred animals, and uh, you know, and, and we're just talking about temperament here. But you know, you can also talk about uh, you know parasites and disease and how oh, yeah. well established it is, and they're prone to being dehydrated, and you know, all those sorts of things. Uh, but that being said, um, you know, I think you do find that captive bred snakes will tend to be calmer on average. Uh, than the wild-caught snakes. Um, and, you know, when you raise them from babies, uh, one of the things that I really like about indigos and kribos in general is that they figure it out pretty quick. Yep. You know, uh, I've had snakes where they just never figure it out. doesn't matter how much you handle them. They just <laughs> never figure it out. And whether that's a feeding response or whether it's a defensiveness thing, like, listen, dummy, I've held you every day for the last two years. I'm not trying to hurt you. You know, mm-hmm. uh, indigos and kribos tend to figure it out pretty fast. And people throw around the word, you know, intelligent. Uh, but for me, kind of one of the barometers of that is that they figure it out pretty fast. They've got a hell of a feeding response. Mm-hmm. But once you get them in your hands, they know it's over. You know, I've had uh, Taiwan beauty snakes or rosy boas or king snakes or whatever that it doesn't matter. They feel flesh. They're going to bite you. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas these guys just sort of figure it out. So if you work with your snakes a bit and you and um, and you, you handle them, they can calm down pretty quickly. And you have to know that there's still going to be variability within individuals. Some individuals just are just as you've experienced with your yellowtails are naturally defensive, and they can just have a chip on mm-hmm. on their on their figurative shoulder, and uh, and others just are calm. Um, so, you know, that's going to happen, but you know, when you're, when you're working with them, you know, you, you can get them to be pretty manageable, even a pretty cranky one with frequent handling, particularly if you raise it from being young. Um, it's not a hundred percent success rate. Um, but, um, you know, cause you're going to get those Karens of the world, but at the same time, uh, you know, uh, you, you could work with them. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Uh, we want to go into care. Sure. Ready? Yeah. Let, let's let's do that. Let's let's kind of let's start talking about how do we take care of these bad boys. I mean, these things are are gorgeous, big, heavy-bodied snakes. Right. So what's uh, what's caging look like? Well, um, I'm a rack person, uh, and I know that's going to differ from a lot of people who listen uh, on with this. I, I absolutely appreciate and respect uh, the natural setups and so forth, uh, and I. I wish I had the space to do that. But that being said, I keep my stuff uh, 
uh, in racks and they're successful and they're they're happy and they're doing their thing. Um, they they they're large colubrids, so they're going to need a big space. Um, but one of the things that I think is is important for them uh, that a lot of people don't get. I mean, this is really husbandry tip number one if you're considering owning an indigo or a crevo is temperature. Uh, that a lot like the Carinata, I was just listening to your Carinata episode um, uh, earlier today. They can't handle the heat. They want it cooler, uh, which is kind of bizarre for people to to grasp because they're kind of perceived as this tropical uh, animal. Um, but they don't tolerate high temperatures. Uh, and that's really the first thing. You know, so I'll have buyers come to me and they'll say, you know, uh, you know, my, my, my snake room can get into the upper 80s in the summertime. I said, this is not the snake for you. Um, they're generally happiest between 78 and 82 degrees, somewhere in that pocket. And that can go down to 76, um, you know, and if it goes much over 82, uh, it needs to be just short for short periods of time, you know, a couple hours in the afternoon. Uh, because in general, they can't tolerate prolonged elevated temperatures. So if your mid-80s are above for extended amounts of time, your snake is going to dehydrate very quickly. They're going to stress out, regurgitate, and it'll ultimately kill them. Um, so you can't keep them like a ball python. You can't keep them like you would a lot of other colubrids that they they prefer to have temperatures that are cooler than other uh, species that you might keep. Um, with that, um, I, I generally prefer to regulate um, ambient temperatures. Okay. Um, okay. And um, when they're youngsters, I give them a little bit more of a temperature gradient. Um, but I generally just keep stuff at ambient. I find it, uh, number one, safer, uh, where I have a lot less risk of malfunction of the heating of racks or thermostats and things. Um, and, uh, they're just really seem to be happy if they're, if their ambient is in that 78 to 82 range, they're thrilled. Um, and they do really well. So, um, you know, that, that's really what I would say is, is the first thing that people need to think about when you're talking about indigos. So, so when you say racks, mm -hmm. uh, can we talk a little bit about what racks you're using? Sure. I... I I use BOA vision racks or vision BOA racks. Um, and that's, you know, the largest tub that, uh, that vision makes. Um, and I wouldn't go any smaller than that for adults. And some of my adults, I need to go there. Uh-oh. Cages, but uh, a lot of people will do, will do a six by two cage. Uh, and, uh, I'm not quite that big. Um, but, um, but, I certainly wouldn't go any smaller than a vision boa tub. Gotcha. And then with the, the neonates, when you're raising them up, do they go into just a normal hatchling rack or are they in a different type setup, like a eight or 12 quart tub or, or what do you do on that front? I'm sorry. If you can hear me, I can't hear your audio. Like, give me a minute. Maybe I can figure this out. All good. Man. Dun, dun, dun. I still can't hear you guys. I'm sorry. It's okay. I just totally we lost you. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. We can hear yes. you. 
Welcome to Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. No, I'm still not getting connect. anything. What's the best thing for me to do? Should I disconnect and reconnect or? Yeah, yes. leave and come back yes. in. Yep. Yes. 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 If you could see it. Okay. All right. Sorry about that, guys. Okay. I will do my best to get right back in here. No worries. And we'll figure it out. While we're uh, waiting for him to come back, I've pulled up vision. I-, I was looking for the measurements on those tubs, and I'm not finding that quite yet. Um, let's see. Looks like it's going to be somewhere. If the rack footprint is 21 inches by 34 and a half, then the tubs are going to be real close to that. Just to give an idea on the size of um, the boa tubs that he was referring to. So, okay, I'm I'm back and I can hear you. Fantastic. All right. All right. Sorry about that. Technological difficulties. Hey, man, we made it through. Got you. <laughs> That's what matters. Okay. All cool. Right. So, where are we? So what I asked was. Um, what are the babies going into? So they they hatch out pretty decent size. Um, are, are they going into an eight quart tub, a twelve quart tub, no tub? What what's what's what what are you doing? I like uh, I like shoebox tubs. Um, okay. Yeah, just six quart tubs. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I think can be a challenge uh, for my buyers at times is. Um, that as as babies, they are sort of high anxiety snakes. They they can be prone yeah. to being a little stressed, and so um, more often than not, when I have one of my buyers call me a couple weeks after after buying a snake for me, and they say, "Hey, my snake won't eat," you know, I'll ask them about the setup. And in general, simple and stress free environment with the right temperature is best. Um, and there are a lot of people that want to put them directly into glass cages um, or, you know, uh, have an area that's large. Um, that can stress them out. You know, to have a small, simple uh, setup is best. So I prefer the six the six quart um, shoebox tubs uh, for my hatchlings. And then obviously as they get bigger, I'll scale them up to, uh, you know, the 28 quart tubs and then on up to the, you know, uh, what used to be the CB70s, I don't know what you call them anymore, the 41 quart tubs, uh, you know, and then on to the adult size. But, um, but yeah, generally smaller, simpler um, tubs that are that don't have any visual stimulation. Gotcha. What substrate are you using for hatchlings, and kind of what do you end up using for your adults? Uh, this is another key, uh, I feel like, you know, if I can start with the adults, um, sure. one of the negative uh, things that you'll hear, and you guys know where I'm going with this already, I'm imagining, I do. Uh, from indigos and crevos is that their fecals are just nasty. Uh, and that's true. That's 100% <laughs> true. Um, I mean, it's like wet cement, and uh, it's projectile. It's not laying a log. I mean, you'll get it on the no. sides. You'll get it on the ceilings uh, and all that sort of thing. So, and, and it exactly, uh, and it doesn't smell great, uh, you know. And obviously, we'll talk about diet later, but diet has a little bit to do with that. But that being said, um, one of the things that I do for the adults, which is an absolute game changer for me, um, is um, I'll have them on aspen shavings. Okay, okay. Um, I want to dry them out. Which, uh, which is weird because they have humidity requirements. So I like my cages to be dry. Um, and then in those aspen shavings, I will mix in 
compressed pine pellets. You can also buy them as compressed paper pellets. Uh, I get mine from a feed store, and people will use it uh, as pellets that they throw down on the bottom of horse stalls because it's designed to soak up liquid and to eat that odor. Um, And so when anything liquidy, uh, indigo poop, whatever, hits these pellets, they sort of disintegrate uh, into this sort of granular kind of sand type, um, you know, texture rather than a pellet. And so it eats up the liquid, it eats up the odor, and it's an absolute, absolute necessity, uh, you know, in my eyes. Now, again, there, uh, uh, one of the things that, um, you know, that I try to follow, too, is that I try to be humble enough to know that, listen, there are other people that are just as successful, if not more so, with doing what, doing this species, breeding the species, keeping the species, and they do it differently. So there are absolutely more ways uh, than one to be successful with these kinds of snakes. But for me, this is my experience. I think the pellets are really kind of a big deal um, as far as mitigating that odor of of the fecals. So um, the aspen shavings mixed in with the compressed pine pellets as the base. Uh, And then they do have humidity requirements. Um, So rather than... Um, try to control the humidity of the entire enclosure, I give that each snake a humid hide box. And so for the adults, that's going to look like a, a shirt box tub, a 28-quart shirt, shirt box tub with a, a big enough hole drilled off to one side in the lid, and um, I fill it with damp sphagnum moss. And so they will go in and out of that as their humidity requirements dictate. So when they're in the blue, they're going to be sitting in there. And when they're ready to shed, you know, that's that's what they're going to be using. And then so that can keep the cage cleaner. It can keep it more odor free. Uh, it's a lot easier to, to manage, in my opinion. But they can still get the same humidity requirements from uh, from their humid hide box. So that's what I do for adults and sub-adults. The hatchlings, I will put those straight on cocoa mulch. Um, just to keep the humidity a little higher because I'm not worried about those little turds. You know, it's the big ones that I have to worry about. Right, so um, that's kind of a breakdown of the substrate. I'll tell you, I think that that setup you just described Mm -hmm. seems to work for so many colored species. I'm finding where having a drier cage with a humid hide seems to, you eliminate a lot of potential bacteria issues you know that are going to to grow faster and you know these keeping the entire thing humid Um, there's a lot of skin issues you know blistering or any kind of scale rot stuff like that that gets cut out Um, I also think that on aspen it still happens don't get me wrong but what are the little flies called Zach the Uh, surfid flies yes I think you get fewer of those because the the feces is being dried out faster, right? Um, you know, right. so. Um, but you know, t- to the point, almost every species needs access to some type of humidity at some point. You know, especially during shed cycles, unless we're just talking about desert species. But even then, 
a lot of the desert right. species will find crevices and cracks, you. you know, to get the, the humidity they need. So I think that setup works fantastic for a lot of species. And I'm sitting here smiling because as I cruise, you know, through your webpage, I'm like, may mm-hmm. have to get a pair of these. May have to look at those. <laughs> and it's, it's sounding like the setups aren't too bad yeah. at all. Well, I I try to keep it simple, you know, and particularly when you have a high volume of snakes, I I try to keep it simple. It's the old, uh, was it the Caulfield, uh, you know, uh, the keeper and the captain, you know, simple can be better sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, again, not to say anything negative about the people that do more of the elaborate uh, naturalistic setups. And I know you guys are dabbling in that uh, stuff, too. But, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it works, and ultimately, I'm, I'm about does it work, and yep. uh, you know, I, and to to your point about other species, you know, I Dromarcon's the the bread and butter. That's the passion. That's what I do. That's what we do a lot of. But I I get interested in side projects like everybody else, and uh, you know, so I'll I'll invariably you know buy a you know a little group of this or a little group of that and kind of play with it. And one of the things that I added to the collection this year were some mandarins, uh, mandarin rat snakes and some, um, and the conspiculata. And then, um, I got some loxacemus bicolor as well, which I thought were kind of cool and, you know, more burrowing, heavy substrate, cooler, more humid kind of species. But I set them up the same way I do my baby indigos. And, uh, by no means am I having any kind of professional, uh, opinion on this because, I only got them a few months ago, but they seem to be just really happy in the same kind of setup. You know, I've got them on dry shavings with a humid hide box, uh, and obviously I'm managing the temperature a little bit differently. But um, they're they see they're growing, they're eating, they're pooping, they're they look super happy. So uh, I think you're right. I, I think it's a setup that can be usable for a lot of different species. Yeah. I was uh, doing a lot of like bamboos and and things of, along those lines this year uh, on Aspen. I, I swapped them whenever winter hit. My babies, you know. Anyway, because I found that when the furnace started running and the humidity was sucked <laughs> out, them out even more. Yeah, right. then I was like, ah, okay, now I got to do a little bit of a change up. But right. uh, yeah, I think that that setup it, it really does. It works. It works for so many. Yeah. 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 I, I'm. I'm pretty positive on one of the other podcasts you're on. I heard about the wood pellets, mm-hmm. and yeah. I didn't realize that was you. Uh, but I was having issues with my false water cobras, which uh-huh. everybody makes this comparison between Drymarkin and Hydrogenastes because they're both like giant colubrids from South America. Exactly, and I can I can honestly say that that mm-hmm. addition to the substrate helped me because the only thing that may rival Drymarkin with its spray painting abilities is a false water cobra. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when yep. they when they go, I've said this before. It's like it, it goes beyond a toddler crapping. It's like a four year old human being dropping a deuce in a snake cage. Oh, it's terrible. So you, yeah. you need something to absorb that liquid. And I've got those big adult breeders in my office at work. No, no, so, no. <laughs> so, uh, no, no. So I needed something like immediately right. to absorb. Um, so I can't. Yeah, I can also test. Yeah, you know, I can say that that's if you have large snakes and you're dealing with feces and you got to get it out of the way and, and get it absorbed and, and almost like a kitty litter effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, I can I can vouch for that too because it was. I've always wondered like where the hell did you hear this? It had to have been you. Yeah. So there you go. Probably, and I, and I don't. Frankly, I don't remember where I discovered it. Um, you know, I 
I one of the things that I really enjoy about having uh, you know a business partner with it um, is that he and I just bounce ideas off each other all the time. It sounds like you two collaborate in the same way, you know. But but you know to to be able to just constantly be having him trying things out at his house that I'm not doing and vice versa, and then have us sharing ideas and what works. And that's anything from feeding hatchlings, which uh, dominates a lot of our conversation, uh, you know, to care and the substrate and the caging. And, you know, it's, we're always looking for a way to get better and it doesn't matter how long you're doing this for, there's always a way to get better. Mm-hmm. So I agree a hundred percent. So why don't we just jump right into feeding? Because uh-huh. This is definitely uh, a fun topic. Feeding the established adults, I can honestly say from my experience, we, we've had blacktails, easterns, and yellowtails here at the school. Uh-huh. Um, and, and feeding the adults is just fun. It's just if they're eating. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, they'll, they, we'll just talk a little bit about the feeding response. So <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> well, listen, um, you know, it's, it's – I, I don't know too many things that top it. You know, false water cobras are in that conversation. Uh, you know, as as you've worked with Musarana can be in that conversation. Yeah. But but they're absolute sledgehammers. Um, and one of the things that really drew me in about Drymarkon in general is that they're not constrictors. And, oh. they're, and they're not venomous. They're, it's just blunt force. Mm-hmm. They just <laughs> grab and overpower and swallow, and that's how they eat. And it doesn't matter what they're eating. If they're eating another snake or a baby alligator or a turtle or a frog or whatever, they just grab and crush and swallow, and they don't care. Um, and how so, badass is that? Let's just own cool. that for a second. I mean, yes. how, how badass yeah. do you have to be to just will something to be your food? You know what I mean? You're, right. not, you're not biting to, with venom. You're not squeezing. You're just, this is going to happen, and you're going to take it kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally right. And, and I, I mean, you know, the, 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 the responsible and safe side of me feeds frozen thawed, but, you know, where it really gets exciting is if you're feeding live because mm-hmm. when they have to kill something and, and you're watching it, it, it is something to behold. So when you talk about the feeding response, you know, and there are some videos that I have on, on YouTube that you can check out, but it's it's not a strike and, and recoil. You know, no. as constrictors will do, they'll bite their prey, they'll pull it into their coils. Indigos are the opposite direction. They bite through the prey item. I mean, it's blunt force trauma. They, they hit it and they take it another foot past. Um, you know, and it's, and it's like a Mike Tyson punch that they're hitting the prey item. So when you're talking about a feed, feeding response, it's not like they're trying to bite and pull it in. They're lunging. Um, and, and I just find that fascinating. I mean, that's just so cool. So, um, you know, it, it's, that's, that, that's, it, it's definitely something to behold, and it's different than you'll see in a lot of other snakes. It's kind of one of those things that you just don't really know, know until you see it yourself and you keep them yourself. It's pretty neat. Yeah, I can. Well, I mean, with their their ophiophagy, they're eating other snakes. Mm. They're one of the few snakes that has elicited a legitimate stylized behavior in their prey snakes. Like you can go online and watch the videos of the Texas indigos when they 
stumble upon an Aatrox or Western Diamondback. Like right. the Diamondback has a completely different anti-predatory behavior that gets initiated in the presence of an indigo compared to like literally anything else. Yeah, and they'll hide their heads. They'll yeah, hide their they, heads they, because the indigos they, are so smart and they have such good vision that they'll just track the head and grab the head. Yeah. And, there and the Aatrox have figured that out. Yep, and they got bite force. Uh, I was tagged by an adult Eastern before, mm-hmm. and it was actually – it wasn't a prey, but it was a, all right, put me down. I'm done. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't like – it wasn't like a, you know aggressive thing, but it was just like a pop type thing. Right. And it hurt. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, you know, I've been right. popped by rat snakes and king snakes and even false water cobras before, and it, it didn't – you know, it – there's a sensation, right. but this kind of had the sensation of being like tapped by a hammer. Like I was like, yeah. right, okay, right, because they're, they're literally punching you, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's you know, and you know, and it, and it speaks to kind of them being a little bit smarter. You know, you'll you'll have other snakes chew on you, and you know, yeah. try to swallow your finger. And Indigo's never going to do that. You know, uh, if it's going to bite you, it's not going to try to eat you. So you're not getting that chomping, you know, grinding kind of a bite, but it it hits you, it bites you, and then they let go and they move on about their day. Yeah. <laughs> so when it it comes to feeding, mm-hmm. they are like you. I think you said already that they're generalists, but um, right. Why don't we talk about feeding adults that are established, and then we can go to getting the little guys to eat. <laughs> right. Uh, so the adults are, you know, pretty easy. Uh, if your if your if your care is right, your temperature is right, and the snakes are happy and they're not stressed, you know, they'll eat and they'll eat well. Um, and the vast majority of my snakes, you know, never skip a meal. It doesn't matter if they're in the blue or not. Um, I'm I, I I'm kind of more of the camp that I don't like to overfeed. They do have fast metabolisms. True. Um, but as adults, particularly in the adult males, and they're not spending energy on, on egg production, uh, they can get obese. And so uh, rodents are a big part of my diet, but it's not the only part, and it's, and it's, uh, it's managed. So um, in general, and I've heard you guys talk about this, I don't remember which episode, but you've talked about this before, uh, when you're talking about prey size. In general, because they're, they can be snake eaters, uh, Dramarchon can't disarticulate their jaws to the same volume that other snakes can. And so you feed them smaller prey items. So I might have a seven foot snake that's as thick as my arm, but I'm only giving it a small rat Mm -hmm. uh, rather than a large rat. And maybe they can choke down the large rat, but if they can, I don't really believe it's good for them. Um, So a standard meal for me, if I just really want to make it an average situation is a, you know, small to medium rat and a chick once a week, just to simplify it for you, right? And obviously, I might ramp things up for females after or you know before egg uh, egg laying, but but that's a standard meal um, for me. Um, now that being said, they will eat anything pretty much that you throw at them. There are some individual preferences with individual snakes, but in general, um, I love feeding them frog eggs from the Asian market as kind of a yeah you know. Um, a little bit of varied uh, variability in there. Um, strips of fish will be great. They'll eat a whole trout if it's appropriately sized. They'll eat whatever you really want to throw at them. Um, it's not often that I feed them other snakes. Um, 
back when I was field herping a lot more and I, there would be roadkill snakes that are fresh, um, you know, I'll freeze them off to kill any kind of parasites. And boy, you, you think they have a feeding response when you're feeding them rodents. Wait till you feed them a snake. They go absolutely berserk. Uh, and, and we can talk about that with the babies as well. But um, yeah, I mean, most snakes, most Dremarkum will eat damn near anything. Uh, I've tried the reptilinks, um, and I've found that um, most will like them and enjoy them. So I like that as a good way to vary the diet. I'm also a believer in a varied diet for snakes that are natural generalists in the wild. Mm -hmm. I think it's good for them to give them as many things as you can. Um, but that being said, you know, an average meal for me is one rat, one chick. Um, but throwing in quail, throwing in fish, throwing in frogs, uh, whatever it may be, as long as it's clean um, yeah. and I don't have to worry about bacteria or whatever else, I think it's a great situation. There was a, a one of my things that I tried and I think failed and I moved on from was that I was buying uh, chicken necks um, and I was buying them in bulk from uh, Carniceria, uh, you know, near my house, uh, you know. Hispanic uh, meat market and I'd buy this big old block of frozen, you know, chicken necks and I was feeding them those and they loved them. Um, but the poops weren't quite right. And this, and the snakes didn't seem as healthy about it afterwards. Every once in a while I get a regurge or something. And, uh, and I think it was just cause they were dirty, you know, and I yeah. don't know if it was salmonella or whatever else, but, um, it, as long as it's clean, They'll eat it. And if you've got food-grade fish from the market or or frog legs from the Asian market or whatever, I, I love that as a way to vary the diet for your adults. I think the more you vary it, the happier they'll they'll be. Cool. Uh, babies. You want to move on to babies? Yes. Uh, so this is, this is the real, the, the real trick, <laughs> right? Um, because, and this is sort of the way I analyze it, because they are prey generalists in the wild. Um, I find that the babies are often hardwired to eat something that is not a rodent. Uh, and if you look at the gut content of a lot of the wild snakes, you know, they're, they're eating rodents, but not nearly to the degree that we sort of expect it in the pet trade. You know, when I sell a snake, the expectation that buyers have is that it's feeding on rodents. And so, you know, the bulk of the work that I need to do to run Black Pearl Reptiles is getting babies established. And, um, you know, if everyone was just sort of cool with the idea that they can and should be eating things other than rodents, um, you know, it would make life a lot easier because they'll eat. Uh, but, you know, it, it's getting them to eat rodents is another story. Um, but the frustrating part is, and I learned this with that very first clutch of blacktail prevos that I was describing earlier, is that you don't know what they want to eat. You know, sometimes they want a fish and sometimes they want a frog and sometimes they don't want a frog, but they want a toad, uh, you know, and sometimes they want a lizard. Sometimes they want a snake. Uh, so it can be frustrating. You know, you get a high volume of these baby snakes and um, it can be it can be difficult. So in general, I would say that starting with scenting with fish or some sort of poultry um, works uh well, those are also generally readily available in the pet trade to get a buy frozen chick or a quail um, works well, and, or, or in fish is obviously more readily available. 
But then even within those categories, you know, you can still have some some differing amounts of success depending on the individuals. You know, are you just sprinkling the pinky with feathers from a quail or are you actually rubbing the pinky in the yolk content from inside the quail? Uh, you know, are you using tilapia fillets from the market or using a trout that you caught fishing that's well caught? And, and all those have differences, you know, um, on average. So uh, it, it's that's the bulk of, of the labor. Um, and then when you're talking about the different of the six major subspecies, um, they can all have average tendencies as well. In general, uh, Texas indigos are, in my experience, um, by far and away the easiest to start. And I would say 90% of them go straight to rodents right out of the gate. Um, so if you're wanting to dabble in dry mark on breeding, um, you know, you might want to start with a Texas indigo if you're a little leery of of getting babies established, um, that they're just significantly more easy. Um, second place to that, I would say, is probably the rubidus, uh, the Mexican indigos, um, that they'll tend to start on rodents um, a little bit easier than some of the others. Uh, and then as far as the, you know, the, the three crebos, the yellowtails, blacktails, unicolors, um, and, and, and even the easterns, that those can take a little bit more work. Um, you, you know, you'll still get a certain percentage of your clutch that goes, you know, straight to rodents, but you know, it's not uncommon to get a clutch of 20 blacktail crevos and not one of them wants rodents right out of the gate. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it takes some work, but you know, the, the upshot of it all, and I'm making it sound really daunting. Uh, the upshot of it all is that, that really once you get a few meals down them, they are aggressive feeders and they'll start hammering, you know, food. And that might be that you have to put a little dab of fish scent on a pinky, uh, you know, every week for three months. Um, but they'll they'll rip it off the tongs, you know. So, um, you know, they, they, they are pretty aggressive. So in general, you get four or five meals of something down them, then they'll start eating anything. Um, and so you just have to kind of get to that uh, point, Um you know, and then there's all kinds of other strategies that, you know, uh, that we've used over the years. And there's a there's a hand feeding method where you hold the snake in your hand and you tease it with a prey item and they'll grab it like that and start swallowing. Starts as a defensive bite and then it moves into uh, feeding. You know, uh, there's a method like that. I think I have a video on my YouTube channel on that. Um, I didn't invent that method, by no means taking credit, but... Uh, it is one that we use, and I know people use it a lot with some of the arboreal colubrids. I've done it with Jason some of the fire and axe, and I know Jason does it too, right? Yeah, some of the spalotes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, there's that method uh, too. So there are different things that you can do, but um, in general also, and we'll shift a little bit towards some of the physiology of, of the babies, uh, eastern indigos and Texas indigos are significantly larger babies than the others. And I don't really know evolutionarily why that is, uh, but everything's it's true. bigger in Texas. <laughs> oh, that, yes. that's that's <laughs> definitely true. Some of these baby Texans are gigantic, um, but uh, but the Krebos um, are are long and skinny, and they're pretty wiry when they're young. And given that they have fast metabolisms, those are the ones I tend to stress out a little bit more over because you've got to get some meals down. You know, they're, they're not going to be able to go four months with no meals in them. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, whereas, you know, Texans or Easterns might be able to handle that a little bit, a little bit better because they're born with just a ton of body weight. And sometimes they hatch with just a gigantic yoke bolus, you know, and they're just mm-hmm. fat for several weeks after hatching and you don't even need to worry about it. But, but the Krebos, the Krebos deserve a little bit more attention. Uh, you know, when you're trying to get them feeding earlier on in the process, you know, they hatch, I let them shed a week later and then it's, then it's to work, man. Yeah. I have a, a funny story real quick about mm-hmm. exactly what you said. It like reinforces it. So, um, there's a, he listens to our show and he's a great guy. Uh, Tim Brophy, he mm-hmm. breeds Easterns and, right. uh, he reached out to us when he found out we were working with OCIC with the Indigo Snakes. Right. And uh, he asked if we would be willing to take a donation of some Eastern Indigos. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, wow. It was kind of an immediate, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Um, you, you sure you don't need to think about that? Yeah. So, uh, But um, he gave us two in, the, in like November, December of 2022. And then he gave us two more in around August. Awesome. Uh, and one of the ones he gave us was uh, – 2023 baby that he was just ha- having a hard time getting it to eat. And Tim told me like, once this thing eats once you're golden, but until right. then it's a Royal pain in the ass, Right. but you know, I'll give it to you. So it's exactly what you were saying. So right. I tried everything. I tried mm-hmm. quail. I tried, um, scenting with snake skins and, and you know, it was a big baby. Like you said, right. I wasn't really stressing out. Um, well the grad students came and we had a, False water cobra born that was just not doing well. Like it was stunted out of the egg. It, it was questionable right. whether it was going to make it or not. And, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I, I put it down. And Tim said, if you have a baby snake, right. offer it. And so the only issue is a false water cobra baby is the same size as an indigo baby. So right. I thought nothing of it and took the snake opened up the, the tub, it was here in the office, and I, you know, have the falsie on the tongs, and I offer it, and that whole, like, punching through the prey item thing you talked about, uh-huh. that, that thing, like, lost its damn mind, grabs the falsie, <laughs> but now I got this, right. and it was like this, yes, shit! <laughs> that's, that's too big of a meal. Right. As big as the damn... Right. So, I ran out in the hallway, and just started yelling, scissors! Like scissors, <laughs> and all the professors know me, and they're like, uh-huh. "What do we need the scissors for?" Like, just give right. me the scissors. So you know, I grabbed a pair of scissors. These weren't like fancy surgical scissors. These are just uh-huh. staples. Sure. Cutting open an envelope. Oh yeah, you're in a yeah. rush. You got to cut that and, thing in half. And the Easterns just you know slobbering this thing down. And so I cut the last uh-huh. third off the water cobra, and um, I'm holding it in my right hand, and that's key for what happens next. And so I walk out in the hallway to give the scissors back. And as I'm turning up the hallway, the freaking president of the university is standing there with his wife and his wife's parents (laughs) and goes, hello, Dr. Loafman, we'd like to see the animals. And he put his hand out to shake hands. But in the right hand, I have the last third of a false water cobra that, you know, is bleeding and everything. And I was like, oh, hi there. And made it ten times more awkward. I was like, could you hold on a second? And I walked across the hallway to the faculty member who's across the hallway. Uh And he looked at me. He's a botanist, by the way. And I just 
threw this third of a false water cobra on his desk. He had no context of what the hell was happening. Wiped the like crap on my pants, then came out and gave the president a tour. But like all of that happened in this like you know minute and a half of like insanity. So, uh, but oh, what a great story. Ate, yeah, uh-huh. but after he ate the falsy, uh-huh. I offered him a hopper, and boom, he has not right. missed a meal since that snake. Right, right. Well, yeah. So, so I would say two things to piggyback on that. Uh, what a great story. Um, I had a similar experience uh, early on when I was breeding Easterns, one of the first clutch or two that I had, and I had a baby that man I could not get feeding, and it had been now three, four months, you know, and the snake's starting to get a little thin, and man, it didn't bat an eye at anything. You know, quail. I tried everything, all the tricks, did everything I could do. Nothing was happening. And at the time, I was uh, also breeding Muserano. And so you, you, you know the struggles with those as hatchlings, uh, you know, as well. And there was uh, a distributor near my house, an importer, where I would go and buy house geckos for my Muserano, which that And that was my secret sauce for the Muserano. And uh, while I was over there, the guy had, had a, a ribbon snake that had just dumped a bunch of babies. And I said, well, that's probably going to be helpful for me. How much for these babies? Let's, you know, I don't know if it was five bucks a head or 10 bucks, whatever it was. So I bought a handful of them and I took them home. And so they're alive, you know, and I, I know people are going to have mixed feelings on live prey, but I think, you know, there's no way this Eastern is going to do anything. It's such a pain. It's so finicky. And I throw in this live newborn ribbon snake in with the eastern indigo and i'm telling you it chased it around the tub i mean chased it it's audibly huffing and and hooding up is the wrong word but they do this sort of neck expansion thing where they sort of kink their head to the side and and they just charge and it's chasing it and the ribbon snake's just going berserk and it's just chasing it down chasing it down and it was just this immediate effect that the snake had. And, and that was, you know, really one of my first powerful learning experiences of like, Hey, listen, they don't want rodents. Yeah. You know, they want other things. And even the adults, you know, you, you see their behavioral change when you give them an alternative prey item. And, and it just reminds you that, you know, these snakes are wired to eat other stuff. So uh, that was pretty cool. Um, and then, you know, when you say that, your snake switched to hoppers kind of right after that. One of the things that I look for when a snake is quote unquote established, you know, it's not so much, and I heard you guys talking about this in a previous episode, not so much how many meals they've had. It's more, can I trust this snake is going to eat for its new owner? And one of the things that you look for with dry mark on is there's, there's a switch in their confidence and in their personality. And when they're young, the first thing they want to do when you open their tub is run. And that might continue for a month and it might continue for six months. But there's a point somewhere along the arc of their development when they are the king of their tub and they have this territorial thing going on. And I don't mean that as far as defensiveness. I mean, when you open their tub, instead of running, they're going to turn and they're going to look and say, What's going on? What are you doing in here? Are you feeding me or what's up? And when they kind of start looking at you like curious, 
and like what's going on here instead of running, that's when you're going to start thinking, okay, now the snake has the confidence that it's going to do that. And when you get to that point, that's when they just turn into feeding savages and they'll just eat for you every time. And so it's just getting that switch to flip and it might be 10 scented meals before that happens and it might be one. Um, But once you get to that point and you get over that hump, you're good to go and you're never going to have to worry about feeding that snake again. Yep. It it was shocking to me with that animal. Like it was three and a half, four weeks of just like, no, no. And like you said, it would Mm -hmm. scoot to the back of the tub. I have little hide boxes in the tub and it would like poke its head out when the tub opened up and then immediately withdraw. Right. And, and it just took that false water cobra. And then after that, I actually think that I, I, the behavior explaining false water cobras do the exact same thing. They uh-huh. they'll do this because they have the similar feeding response that the Dremar can do. And when they're young, mm-hmm. they will will try to escape until they realize what food is. The only difference in my experience between Dremarkin and Hydrodynasties is there's even though they're do, using the blunt force trauma that we talked about, the Dremarkin seem to have a little bit more elegance. Than the complete right. crackhead right. false right. water cobra that just is thrashing at everything. Like, like right. they they my my dry marking haven't come up out of the tub. The the high the you don't know what the hell's going to happen with a falsy. It's like right. they're going to fire off the the tub, hit the ground, then go after your toes. Like they they just <laughs> sure they're nuts. Yeah. which is why oh. I love them. So and you'll and you'll get your indigos to do that too. Um, <laughs> you know, varying by individual, but particularly. In the summertime. I mean, you're still controlling the ambient in your room, but there's something about summertime when, man, uh, you know, they'll, they'll launch out. I have a video somewhere on YouTube of, uh, um, at the time, he wasn't very big, but he ended up being an eight-and-a-half-foot yellowtail that would, I mean, he would, it was a coiled spring. You know, you open the tub, and he's, he's out there, and he's on the floor, and he's chasing you across the room. And if you don't get a rat in his mouth, uh, you know, pretty quick, he's going to get one of your body parts in his mouth. Uh, you know, it's it's crazy, and you get an eight foot long snake doing that. I get it. You know, Muserano <laughs> will do something similar too. There's oh, a yeah. there's a point where they switch, and once they switch, it doesn't matter. Ooh. They're they're coming after you. No, you, it's funny you talked about the mooses. Um, uh-huh. The only snake that has pushed me across the room and made me jump up on a table was a Muserano, <laughs> a boy Ruda. Right. Um, right. I was wearing socks, and uh-huh. that and that snake came out on the floor. A million times when I was wearing Chacos or I was wearing my shoes. And, you know, it just kind of looks. But there was just something about the damn white ankle socks. And it came out, and I I just knew immediately the way it, like, looked at my big toe. And I was like, oh, damn. (laughs) And then I'm (laughs) backpedaling. And as my feet moved faster, it got more excited. Uh And so I just, like, launched up on the desk in my office. Stuff went everywhere. Um, and it actually like it was fun. It was hysterical. It looked like a dog. Like it followed my foot up and was just kind of like, "Where, where's the prey item? Where is it?" Uh, so yeah, no. But all these snakes, you know, you know yeah. I, I mean, find this endearing. It, I don't. This is why the subsection of the of the herpetoculture community loves snakes like this because you're you know <laughs> yes. most snakes that are kept as pets aren't going to do anything like we just mm-hmm. described uh, and. You know, if if but if all that sounds appealing, then then you know all these weird, obscure colubrids that are larger, you know that's that's for you. Yeah, 100%. it makes it so much more exciting. <laughs> you know, I mean, oh yeah, man, you got to be on your toes. Absolutely. 
All right, so yeah. so we know how to take care of the adults now. We know how to get mm-hmm. babies going or what to try. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about how to get babies. Breed them. So, okay. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so what's breeding look like? Breeding looks like this. They they are winter breeders. Okay. okay. So they want to breed when it's cool. Um, and generally on the front end of the cooling uh, cycle. So um, I've tried a lot of different things with success. Um, as far as temperatures go, I will say that I'm not super precise. Um, that there were many years, a good decade worth of breeding where I didn't really manage the temperatures at all. I, I keep them in the garage and the temperatures here in Southern California, they just, the photo period with the windows in the garage took care of that. And, um, and you know, the temperature just dipped a bit in the winter and, and they did their thing. I manage it a little bit more closely now, but uh, in general, you know, you're going to cool them a little bit um, in the in the winter time. And uh, when it's cooler, that's when you start pairing. Um, so for me, where I live, you're talking about November, um, you know, sometimes as early as October, not really. Uh, quite as much um, lately for some reason they've been wanting to go a little bit later into December but generally November December is what you're looking at and I think that kind of mirrors a lot of what they do in the wild uh, as well so um, on temperatures that you're looking at right okay so uh, as I said before you know you I'm generally keeping my ambient in the upper 70s you know sometimes low 80s um, but I'm going to start dropping those daytime temperatures down into the mid-70s, perhaps low-70s. And then I'm going to let the night times get cooler than normal. Um, I'll, let, I'll let it have that day and night fluctuation, whereas in the summertime, non-breeding season, it's just 78 all the time. Uh, but I'll let it get down into 65 or so, and that'll usually kick things in. Um, I will say, you know, you asked earlier about are there differences in between the six subspecies and I will say that I've had a little bit more success with Easterns getting even colder than that. And uh, there was a period of time where I, I haven't been doing it anymore, but there was a period of time where I, I took an entire rack and I put it on my back patio. Uh, you know, obviously it wouldn't work where you guys live, right? But, uh, <laughs> but I, here in Southern California, you know, I did that and I, I wrapped my wrap, the whole rack in a tarp and I put a thermostat on it and I set it to 70 or something like that. Um, maybe it was even cooler than that, I think. And, and it's, you know, 45, 50 degrees out. And so the majority of the tub was 45, 50 degrees with a little heat off in the corner at 70. And man, they locked up, they locked up like crazy. And, um, and I feel like my fertility was better when they were cooler. We're talking about Easterns here specifically. Um, so I think that's a key. If you're going to, if you're going to temperature wise, get them, you know, want to eat, breed Easterns, I would encourage you to go even colder and that they will actually breed in 50 degrees. And, um, I mean, I've had them locked up for over 24 hours at a time at 50 degrees. It's very bizarre. Um, but, um, they'll like that. But that being said, most of the Crevos and, and Indigos will still breed, you know, in the mid sixties as well. Um, so that's, so, so that works, uh, for me. You know, I'll, I'll let the night times drop a little bit. I'll lower the day times a little bit, um, not by a ton, um, and uh, and that works pretty well. Um, as far as pairing the snakes, um, as a lot of us breeders have seen with uh, a lot of the colubrids, that it's not uncommon behavior 
for a male to bite the neck of a female. Mm-hmm. Uh, that king snakes will do it, and it's gopher snakes will do it. It's not uncommon at all, right? Um, but there's a big difference because when you're talking about the jaw strength and the teeth of Dramarcon, you're talking about potential for damage here. And so I've, you know, I've had it happen where before you can really do anything, that if the male wants it and the female's not quite ready, um, you know, he may well bite her and uh and try to do what he's going to do and it can rip her skin right open and one of the things that you'll see too with indigos uh kribos is that they have very large scales but there's also very thin skin underneath it um and, and it's not very durable to be honest with you and so it's pretty easy to sort of slice open skin and so we've had to treat a lot of uh we've had to treat gashes in some of our females from a, a breeding bite. So that has to be observed. So you have to watch that sort of thing. Um, and there are, are certain individual males that are more prone to doing it than others. So you got to get to know your snakes. There are snakes that I trust completely in breeding because I know they're cool. I've been breeding them for a lot of years and, and they're fine and they're very gentle and they're good. But there are others where not so much. And I know I got to watch them, and um, and it's it has gotten to the point in some cases where some males are just not manageable, and I have to stop breeding them, and I got to bring in something else. I, I will say it's the exception to the rule, but but it can happen. Um, so uh, you know, observing your snakes, knowing your snakes, knowing the male, knowing the female, um, you know, <clears throat> figuring out the right timing of it all. Because a lot of this can be, you know, sort of uh, uh, stimulated by the male wanting it, but the female not being ready. Um, And and that can kind of get the bites stuff going. Uh, And then secondary to that is that even less common than that, but still possible, is that you you will get predation uh, issues. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes um, the male will want to eat the female. It's usually the male wanting to eat the female. Uh, and I know, Clint, you were talking about this with the uh, with the Carinata, but mm-hmm. um, in Dry Marcon, I don't think we hit on this yet, um, males get larger than females. Yeah. Uh, not by a ton, a half a foot to a foot, you know, maybe a, maybe a foot on average, I would say. Uh, but males get larger. And so, you know, in general, any kind of predation uh, issue is usually a male towards a female. Um, even if they're equal size, I've just seemed to notice that it kind of goes that way. And again, it doesn't happen that often, and it shouldn't happen if the timing is right. Um, but it's something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, these are all, you know, the exceptions to the rule. This is it's not like this is happening constantly. I'm a lot more careful when I'm breeding Musarona, for example. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I've had it happen where, you know, like uh, I think you uh, mentioned in the Carinata episode about... I walked in and I had a yellowtail female halfway down the throat of the male. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for, and fortunately, she did survive. You know, I backed her out and she wasn't happy, but she was still breathing and was cool and she was fine. So, you know, you have to watch, you know, um, uh, you know to protect the health of your animals and keep them happy and good. But uh, that being said, when the timing's right, you're good to go. I do generally um, wait for a fresh shed uh, shed. Um, that does seem to prompt things. 
Um, changes in the barometric pressure seems to prompt things. Um, when there's a storm or some kind of storm system coming through, I'll yeah, tend to pair during those periods of time a little bit more uh, heavily. Um, in general, I don't spread one male across a lot of females. Uh, I, I know that's a conversation that comes up sometimes with breeding is that I really only do one or two females per male. In rare instances, maybe I'll go to three. I think if you try to go much more than that, you start losing fertility and you start losing the willingness to breed. Uh, there's some individuals, particularly with some of the Mexicans, that I'm a little bit more confident that they can get that job done. But um, in general, they don't do that. Um, but, you know, when you have a large, and I, I know this will be another topic that we got coming up here, but when you have a larger breeding group, if you can use different males, uh, you know, then you can be offering unrelated pairs of babies rather than partially related pairs. And, and that helps with kind of keeping the genetic strength going, uh, for your babies. But, um, but that's kind of the, the, the cycle. And so to move it along, once you get a lockup, um, I have, um, it does seem to be that one lockup is usually sufficient. It's pretty rare to be honest with you. If I get a lockup, I'm going to get eggs in most cases. And that's, uh, you know, maybe somewhat a product of just that I've, you know, whatever procedure and system I'm using is is working. But once I get a lockup, I'm pretty confident I'm going to get eggs. Um, I'll start feeding the female a little bit more heavily, uh, and then a few months later, you know, you'll you'll get your clutch. So if I'm breeding in November, uh, December, my clutches are generally happening around April. Um, and clutch sizes also varies among the subspecies in general. And again, this is all on average. Um, indigos and Easterns and uh, Mexicans will have smaller clutch sizes than the Kribos. So they might have more like 6 to 12 eggs, whereas the Kribos might have more like 15 or 20. Uh, and then the egg size is also, you know, follows suit. So you know, uh, Texas indigos and Eastern indigos generally lay pretty large eggs. Uh, Mexicans a bit smaller. Um, and that goes with sort of large eggs, small clutches, um, kind of a thing. Um, whereas the Kribos might pop out 20 eggs, they're smaller eggs and they're smaller babies. Um, so that's generally happening around April. Um, I guess I'll go straight into incubation. Before you go to that, I want to make sure that I want to make sure I'm understanding. So, uh -huh. once you've cooled down, you know a little bit to the temps that you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. you put them together, you get your lock. You don't have a real brumation after that. Is that right? It's. I'll still keep it cooler. Uh, um, I'll still continue that that cooler weather cycle. So they they may lock they might lock up around Thanksgiving or something. I don't. I still am not raising the temperatures again until February or so. And are you feeding during that time with the temperatures lower? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. But it's uh, significantly smaller meals, mm -hmm. and it's less frequent. So gotcha. rather than doing a rat and a chick every week, every five to seven days, you know, now I'm doing you know maybe a chick once every ten days, or a small rat once every two weeks, something like that. I'm, I'm still offering food. Uh, that being said, I will say at least half of them don't want to eat anyway. Gotcha. Uh, okay. and, and I'm generally, you know, listen, if they, if they want to eat, I'll feed them. Um, and if they don't want to eat, I don't. Um, but, um, 
I just I just make sure that the meal size and the meal frequency is something that they can pass given the temperatures that I've got them at. If I have the Easterns outside and it's 50 degrees, I'm not feeding them anything. You know? Gotcha. So. Okay. Um, anyway, so if we're good with that, are you ready for incubation? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, incubation is absolutely one of the trickier things because there are some differences between incubating your average colubrid and intramarkon. Um, so for, for starters, um, you got to be cooler. Um, you know, I think in general, you're talking corn snakes or whatever, you're looking at 80, 82 degrees, and that's sort of standard for a lot of colubrids. Uh, if, you, if you're incubating indigos and crebos like that, you're a lot more prone for kinking. Uh, at higher temperatures, you will get more kinks. So what I prefer is uh, more in the, the mid-70s. Um, I set my incubator at 76 degrees. I lock it in. It doesn't change. 76 degrees. And, um, and they do really well with that. So uh, that's absolutely a key. Uh, the other thing is, and I don't know the science behind it, but indigo eggs are different than other colubrids. First off, um, they have a texture. Uh, it's like sandpaper. It's not smooth, leathery eggs that you would expect from other colubrids. It's, it's a rough-feeling um, egg. And, you know, your first thought is, oh, man, that must hurt like hell when it's coming out of the female. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, when I, I've, you know, I've caught them in my hand right as they're laying them at times, and they're, they're soft, sort of gelatinous, gooey kind of mass when they come out of the female. And literally within minutes, once they hit that oxygen, the eggs start breathing. And they, they very quickly, within a few minutes, they harden and they get that, uh, that rough exterior and they get that texture and they fill out, you know, to where they're, they're, they're not uh, soft and mushy to the touch. So it's a really kind of a bizarre phenomenon. Um, but anyway, but, but I think there's something to learn from that too, because when you're incubating them, they're more sensitive to air and temperature, I'm sorry, not temperature, more sensitive to air and humidity than other colubrid eggs. Um, so for me, one of the things that are really neglected is um, whatever substrate you're using um, should be drier than other egg boxes that you would use. Um, now, despite being kind of a data guy, uh, I don't have data on this. Uh, I, it's For me, it's a, it's a feel thing. Um, you know, I had it described to me when I was first starting out with Hondurans, you know, uh, take your vermiculite, soak it with water, grab a handful, squeeze it and wring it out so every drop of water you can get out of it is out of there, and then that's what you use for your eggs, and that tends to work well on king snakes and corn snakes. That's way too wet for an indigo. And what'll happen if, you, if you're incubating with wetter substrate like that is that they will absorb some of that liquid and they'll swell. And in some cases, it'll swell enough to where the baby's malformed. You'll have defects. You'll have kinks. Yeah. Uh, and in extreme cases, they can swell enough to where the egg actually bursts, that they'll actually split open because they've absorbed so much of that humidity. So it's key to, to, to not let them have too much humidity. Um, so what I will do is I'll almost barely moisten the vermiculite. And I use vermiculite. I've used perlite before. Uh, and I know other people use kind of more of the Sims method where they, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, put the egg on the egg crate type material and then you've got the water floating water down below. You can be successful in any of those scenarios, but what it, it just in general, it has to be drier than what you would do gotcha. with other snakes. So um, I'll just barely moisten the vermiculite. I'll put the eggs on top of it. Uh, I'll set it at 76 degrees and I'm a lot more likely to be successful with that kind of uh, a setup. Um, what I will do, though, is I'll add ambient humidity to my incubator. So I've got one of those big freestanding incubators, and I'll put a big tub of water down at the bottom of the whole incubator. Yep. And I would rather have humidity in the incubator instead of in the, the egg box itself. That makes um, sense. And that seems to work well for me. Uh, the other variable that I think is the hardest to measure and is the most neglected is airflow. Um, they need airflow, and particularly towards the tail end of the incubation period, but uh, they, they will actually breathe these eggs. Um, and again, I don't understand the science behind it, and they have pores or how, are, how they're different than other, uh, other eggs. It's just something I've noticed with my uh, observations, that if you, for example, if you set them up in a shoebox container, and if you fill the vermiculite, you know, three-quarters or seven-eighths up the way up to the top, you put the eggs in there, you put the lid on. If the lid, if there's not much space between the egg and the lid, that's not enough air. And what will happen is you'll get defects for sure. Oh. Um, and they, they have to be able to breathe. So what I'll do is I'll put a – first off, I'll use uh, bigger egg tubs. I'll use more of a tote that has some height to it rather than a shoebox. Um, and I'll put, you know, instead of, you know, four, five, six inches of vermiculite, I might do more like two or three. And I'll leave a good four or five inches of space between the egg and the lid. And to allow more egg, uh, air inside of the egg box. And that's a lot better. I will also poke holes in my egg boxes to allow air to come in and out of the egg box um, with the understanding that there's humidity in my incubator. Um, you so, you know, a lot of people worry and say, what are you crazy? You're putting holes in your, in your egg box. You're going to lose all your humidity. But if the humidity is in the incubator, you're in a lot better shape there. So um, that's, uh, I think, something, and I don't know how it would transfer to other species. I'm just not um, experienced enough with other types of, uh, of colubrids. But in, in general, one of the things that I think we really have to talk about with Dramarcon specifically is, is airflow. You know, they've got to be able to breathe. And if you don't provide that, um, you're, you're not going to be happy with your results. Damn. Yeah. I think a lot of people get a little too afraid of the, the humidity piece and mm-hmm. they, they lose the oxygen, you know, to your point. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, for me, one of the things that I do at least once a week, I open every tub that's in the incubator. Yeah, every one of them. Just I let that stagnant air out, let fresh mm-hmm. air in, and I even have you know an air, at least one air hole on each side, just for that yeah, small that. amount of ventilation. But I, I want to air it out. I just want to get the stagnant air out, and because I think that yeah, I mean you're going to have that initial rush of humidity that leaves by opening mm-hmm. that lid, but you close that lid, put it back in, it's going to build the humidity right back up because of, you know, the dampness that's already in the substrate. Right. So, right. yeah, I, I think that, I mean, airflow is, we've talked about that. I mean, even in caging, yeah. you know, on this, uh-huh. we, yeah. I think that that's a piece that 
we too often sacrifice because of humidity. You know, we're told that it needs humidity. It, it also needs oxygen, you know, and right. clean oxygen. So, yeah, and even when you're talking in cages, and this is not necessarily relevant to, to Jeremark, or at least with the way I keep them, that, you know, you, you'll hear people say, you know, you, you want humidity in the air, you don't want the substrate wet. Right. Because that's when you start talking about bacteria and you start talking about all that mold and all that other kind of stuff that you don't want, you know. And, and I think it's relevant to, to eggs as well. Yeah, so agree. When, when you're incubating the eggs, these are going into an incubator. You're not doing the put them up on a shelf because it's 77 degrees ambient in your room. I'll tell you, over the years, I've tried everything. Um, <laughs> and, and I will say also that there were um, – one of the things that my partner and I were kind of doing differently, which was kind of cool, was that um, he has water turtles in his uh, snake room. And so there's way more humidity ambient in his snake room than in mine. And um, what that has, you know, and so what he was doing with his eggs is he was he was putting his eggs up in a cabinet um, because he had the humidity that he needed in that room. And, and you know, you're keeping... You're keeping your indigos in the you know mid to upper 70s anyway, and if the temperature's right, and the humidity was there for the turtles, he was having a lot of success with that. Um, you know, I've since uh, won him over to my way of doing things, and he's um, you know he's he's doing things in an incubator now because it's just a little bit more precise and a little bit less fluctuation, and you know lowers the risk of you know uh, some kind of anomaly wrecking things for you, but. Um, you know, it's it's important. So uh, I've tried a lot of different things, but ultimately I've landed where I'm at now. Gotcha. Okay. So I I think one of the pieces that I wanted to make sure that we got to touch base on, you know, as well, because I, I think we've got incubation now. We're, we're through the breeding and that piece. Um, the legalities. Um, because I know that with, Eastern indigos, you know, there's there's a, some hoops to jump through to get a hold of these and to be able to uh, to own those. So can we can we touch base on that? And is there any more than just the Easterns that we have any um, legal issues with? Right. So the only restrictions are with Eastern indigos. Um, there there was a, a period of time which has changed recently where Texas indigos uh, were just protected from being collected in the wild. Uh, that, that has since changed. The state of Texas has changed their stance on that, and you can now uh, take some with a hunting license. Um, but, uh, but that being said, um, the only, as far as commerce goes, the only restriction is with eastern indigos. Okay? So they are federally protected, and the way in general, if I really oversimplify wildlife laws, the way in general it works is that uh, the feds can't tell you what you can own or not own. What they can do is they can tell you what you move across state lines, interstate commerce. So, um, so you don't need a permit to own one. Um, you can own one, and you're you're, you're totally cool. Um, but where the issues come in is if you try to move them across state lines when commerce is involved. So, if uh, if I have a buyer who's outside of California, that buyer needs to obtain a federal interstate commerce permit uh, in order to in order to get that done. And what that permit allows you to do is it allows you to move the snake across state lines. 
And once the snake moves across state lines, then the permit's done with, it's, it's over, it's expired, and you're good to go. So that's the way that the federal government restricts uh, the commerce of eastern indigo snakes. Now, that being said, uh, the responsibility for dictating what you can own or not own is on the states, individual states. So in some states, you're not allowed to keep indigos. Uh, in most states, you are allowed to keep indigos. So if you're interested in owning uh, an eastern indigo snake, here's what you need to know. You have to know, first, are you allowed to keep them in your state? And second, if you buy them from a breeder within your state, you're good. You don't need a permit. You don't need anything. Um, but if you're going to buy one from a breeder outside of your state, you need to get the Federal Interstate Commerce Permit to allow shipment across state lines. Um, if you own an eastern indigo snake and you move, if I pick up and want to move to West Virginia tomorrow, um, I don't need a permit because there's no commerce involved. As long as there's commerce, you need the permit. So if so, you were to do okay. donate them to, to Zach, would that Correct. require a permit? It will not. Nice. It will not. Nice. Now, obviously, some some people uh, will try to use that as kind of a way to wiggle around, you know, selling snakes right. and whatever, you know. I'll give you some snakes and you give me back, you know. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the intent of the law is to say there should be no compensation. So what I will do if I'm donating a snake is I'll include a letter with the snake saying, listen, the snake is being donated to so-and-so. No compensation whatsoever has been given. Uh, and and I'll, I'll have a donation letter that'll work like that. But anytime there's compensation, whether it's a trade or whatever it is, if there's compensation across state lines, you have to get a permit. Gotcha. Okay. All right. All right. So we're, we're, we're pushing two hours, but if it's okay, I, w- I want to jump on the inbreeding question because I know that that's a yeah. hot button topic, and I, I would love to have that discussion here. So, sure. Um, if, if anybody's in the into dry marking, uh, a couple of the species, and I'm a little bit ignorant to this, but I can definitely speak to I've I've lived it with blacktail cribos. Um, that there's definitely this idea of you know some of these pop- captive populations due to legalities of importation in the case of eastern indigos they're federally protected so we're not going to be getting any more anytime soon and you know i personally as a conservationist don't see a problem in that uh but you know you definitely have to keep track of lineages and breeding because if you do a lot of sibling to sibling breeding this is definitely a genus where you can't really get away with the inbreeding too too much or maybe right. you can but you definitely end up seeing the, the physical manifestations of inbreeding in this group of snakes. And I was a bit ignorant to that when I was putting together our collection here at the uni. And um, I purchased, I felt like I was purchasing blacktail after blacktail after blacktail and kept getting what equated to highly inbred snakes. So, right. um, so I don't know if you want to speak to just what you what an inbred dry market looks like because they definitely mm-hmm. have a distinct appearance. What happens? Your thoughts on it? Uh, just kind of go, you know, yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, uh, you're you're 100 correct. You know, inbreeding is more of an issue with Charmarcon than other snakes. Uh, you know, and, and I know it. You know, pops up with certain morphs of other snakes and things, 
But dry marcon are more particularly sensitive to that, that you're more likely to get defective animals uh, the more you, you inbreed. Um, and that's definitely a thing. Um, now, as far as what does an inbred snake look like, that can be the challenging part, you know, and that's where we do get a lot of disagreement within the community of what that looks like. Um, the obvious ones are uh, what you've experienced, and that's where they'll get to be uh, more of a dwarf. Uh, the snake will get to be about four feet long and then stop growing long and start growing fat. And uh, they get this sort of short and dumpy look, and, um, and, and, that can, and that's an issue. Um, the second issue is that they can sometimes develop an enlarged heart. And it usually happens around one to two years old, uh, three, four feet long or whatever it may be, and it's generally fatal. Um, you know, and so that's obviously, uh, you know, a bummer if you purchase a snake and you think you're in good shape and next thing you know, two years later, it, uh, your snake rolls on you cause it has, uh, an enlarged heart and you can actually see the bulge, you know, in, in the snake that it can get that, uh, large. So, you know, those are the health risks, um, uh, that you have with inbred snakes, uh, never mind. You know, that when and if you do start breeding them, that you're more likely to be producing uh, animals with defects, uh, you know, that'll grow up to be runts and whatever. It can be uh, a challenge in that, you know, a lot of the time, these snakes that grow to be dwarfish or have an enlarged heart, they're visibly fine when they're a baby. You know, so it can be difficult for you to ascertain what you've got going on there. And it sounds like, uh, Zach, you've experienced that, you know, that you, mm-hmm. you, next thing you know, two years later, it's clearly something's off here. So, uh, it, it is important to make sure that when you're breeding, that we all have, you know, uh, a, a professional responsibility to make sure that we are outcrossing and avoiding inbreeding as much as possible when you're breeding Tremarcon. So if you have intentions to breed, I would absolutely make sure that you're either talking with the breeder or that you're buying your, you're comprising your pair of two different breeders or whatever it may be. Get as much lineage information as you can to make sure that your snakes are as unrelated as possible. Now, obviously, that can be a challenge when you're talking about eastern indigo snakes because uh, the gene pool and the pet trade has been limited for as many years as they've uh, they've started, they've become protected. Uh, and again, from a conservation standpoint, rightly so. Um, so it, it is something that you have to be mindful of. It's something that I'm mindful of. Um, what I will generally do when I'm choosing my holdbacks or when I'm choosing snakes to pair um, is I I look at the product. Um, you know, when my when my baby snakes are big and strong and robust. I'm doing something right. And when my babies are, you know, seem a little weak or a little lethargic or they're maybe they're smaller or, or the fertility of my clutches is low and I can't explain why, um, you know, I avoid those pairings. And I'll either, if I can isolate it, pinpoint it to a certain breeder, that breeder's got to go live with somebody else. Um, and, you know, I did that with Eastern Indigos for many years. Uh, where I have spreadsheets of data where I 
kept track of fertility rates and defect rates and which males I'm pairing with which, which females and so forth. And I had a big enough of a group that I was able to kind of mix and match certain males with females. And I would, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in breeding snakes that have more red or more black or whatever. You know, I'm perfectly happy to breed an indigo with a red throat to one that's all black uh, because what I want to see are big, thick, robust babies. So I did that for a long time. And slowly over the years, I, I weeded out the animals that I felt like were weaker or were um, producing weaker offspring. And uh, and then I finally did, um, there was a, a few years ago, uh, a guy came out doing, that had developed a, a DNA test that kind of gave you a little um, somewhat imperfect snapshot of a snake's genetic strength. Uh, and so... Finally, after years, I, I broke down and said, you know, more data is never a bad thing. And so I sent off shed skins to get them all tested. And, you know, lo and behold, after, you know, a decade of sort of fine tuning my breeding group, um, they came back as pretty genetically strong, relatively speaking. Um, and so that's that's worked. And uh, I'm I'm working with uh, Benson Morell on on furthering and getting a little bit more accurate testing with all that kind of thing. Uh, for Eastern Indigos, uh, we're in the process of that now, so hopefully we can get some good things going with that. But it is definitely a concern um, when you talk about blacktails. You know, the other thing that's happened uh, in the last five years or so, I would say, is that you're starting as the demand for Drumarcon has increased. You're starting to see a lot more Im- uh, imported from Nicaragua and from uh, Central America. And for example, this year I have a few clutches where. I bred some of my classic pet trade blacktail Kribos to a wild caught animal, nice. uh, you know, and the babies are coming out great, you know. So mm-hmm. it's absolutely something that needs to be mindful of that people need to be mindful of. And if you have a, if you have intentions of breeding, um, you should take care to make sure that you know the lineages as best you can, uh, that you have whatever info you can, and that you're avoiding. Um, you know, related breedings as much as possible. All right. Damn, that was a... So, that's dry marking. How about we go to our final question, Clint? Does that sound cool? Uh, shoot, guys, I think I lost you again. I can't hear oh. you anymore. <laughs> Uh-oh. I think you scared him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Should I jump yeah. off and come back on? I know we're ending the getting close to the yeah. end of our time. Uh, let, let me do it real quick. Seemed to work last time. Let's try it again. Yep. Yeah, well, any of our listeners that want to dry market, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's, this one's been packed with some information. I mean, I was mm-hmm. super excited for it because it's a species I've never worked with, you know, or any, you know, any of the subspecies there. Yep, so, I'm back and I can hear you. Thanks, guys. All right, good deal. Yeah. All right, so our our final question that we ask everybody, uh, yes. the great legacy of Matt Most, uh, is what – what are your thoughts on herpetoculture in the next five to 10 years? Do you gloom and doom it? Do you think this is like a Renaissance period and we're, we're going to, you know, kind of go into great pastures. I mean, Glenn did a great job with the market report talking about Mm -hmm. how, you know, the state of colubrids versus everybody else, um, at least numerically and statistically. So what's your perspective on all this with, is the, the do you still have the demand for dry market that you did five ten years ago? 
Uh, well, here's my market. Here's my market report. Um, for the last 15, 20 years, the demand for drum archon was essentially unlimited. I mean, it was crazy. Um, and uh, this year, it's definitely slowed. Um, but you know, remember also, uh, it's it, it, it is kind of a niche because it's a higher value, more expensive snake, and it's not for everybody. Um, but that being said, it, it does seem to have slowed. Um, but that being said, um, I think as far as herpeticulture in general, uh, I think we're moving in a great direction. And I think a lot of it is uh, that we're just there's more information. There's more to learn. There are more guys like you guys that are that are, you know, uh, facilitating discussions about, you know, how cool things are, but also how to do things right and how to breed things and how to take care of things correctly and how to make the animals happy and and all those things. So I think in general, we're, we're moving in the right direction. So I'm excited about the next decade. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Well, we'll have to have you on in the future to talk South American colubrids. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's funny how, you know, after two hours, there are still things, Unsaid. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, yes. we, we could probably get a whole nother episode in on still Charmarkon. Uh, uh, there, there, there are lots to talk about, but, uh, you know, I'd, 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 I'd love to come on and talk Moosterana and Barons Racers and all that uh, kind of stuff, too. I, I got to finish your book. I'm only about halfway through. Oh, uh, there we go. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that we've kind of tossed around is, you know, for yeah. some of these species and everything like you just mentioned, having maybe a potential roundtable having a you know, few guests on at the same time and, and getting to talk about you know, different experiences with some of the same species. And I think that that's no, going to be totally. a, a fun piece to do. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So if people are interested in a indigo or Kribo and, and, and they, they want to kind of look at what you've got, what or just reach out for information, What? go to the website, go to social media and find you. How do you recommend people – I mean, listen, my general strategy from day one has been let's get people funneled through my website. So you, you want to start there. It's www.blackpearlreptiles.com. Um, I tried to make it uh, a place that's information friendly, that's photo friendly, that's educational as well as for commerce. Um, and uh, so you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. Um, but in general... Even those social media outlets are are meant to drive people through the website so they can learn about this stuff before they decide to go any further along the purchasing process. Um, you know, I'm too too old to understand or get the TikTok thing or whatever else. Yeah. Uh, even my my YouTube stuff is pretty pathetic, but um, <laughs> but uh, the website's the best place to get a hold of me. You can email me through the website. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you. Uh, we'll definitely have you on again if you're willing to come back on. we got plenty to talk about. Hey, man, I had a great time. This, this was right. a lot of fun. I'll come on any time you guys will have me. Ah, Fantastic. awesome. Thank Alrighty. you so much. So, Super cool. Those who want to get a hold of me, Zach Loafman on Facebook, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, and then potential grad students, uh, reach out. You know, we didn't even get to talk about OCIC. I've had a graduate student work on making a sausage diet for indigos that's more equivalent to a cold-blooded ectothermic prey item um so we can definitely talk about all that uh but uh we are actually currently 
forming a relationship with Central Florida Zoo, and the goal is to have graduate students working with indigo snakes because they're so freaking awesome. You don't have to twist my arm twice to work with indigo snakes. So if you're interested in that, you made it to this point, and you're uh, nerding out, and you want to go to grad school, hit me up. Um, and, yeah, uh, we also want to thank NPR Network for having us. We love being part of the network. Uh, we work with Eric pretty much weekly. That man is a saint. Um, we asked him two, three weeks ago, trying to lighten his workload, if there was anything we could do to help upload the episodes. And then the process he goes through after we record this, I think Clint and I both saw what he said, and we're like, yeah. <laughs> and no, we just figured out how to freaking add an admin to a Facebook page. <laughs> so, anyway, so that's me. Where can people find you, Clint? You can find me on Facebook, uh, my personal Clint Bartley. I am or under the Metazotic, excuse me, Metazotics business page. Uh, we're Metazotics LLC on Instagram, or you can always email us at metazotics at gmail.com. Um, and, of course, you can find Zach and I both at Colubrid and Clubroid Radio on Facebook. So please shoot us messages there. Yes, yes. So with that being said, whatever time of day, night, morning it is, hope you're having a good one. Later. Hey, this is Zach. And I'm Clint's, and we wanted to thank Exoterra for sponsoring this episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Exoterra is the industry leader in glass terrarium enclosures, and we are a big fan of getting to see the species we work with both at home and at the university. We utilize Exoterra caging here at Metazotics, and in addition to top quality terrariums, Exoterra offers an array of heating options, lighting, supplements, decor, and truthfully anything needed or wanted when keeping reptiles. Thank you, Exoterra, for supporting Colubrid and Colubrid. Radio.